Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is still Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. I have a big announcement. I feel like it was just two episodes ago that I did almost the exact same thing. But Persona 5 Royal is now out on multiple platforms, including the Nintendo Switch, and I've been playing it. I know the port is good. I've read that much. And I actually just bought a copy for a close friend of mine. I got the steel book for the Switch. I almost bought it again. One for you, one for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I already have. I I have the original game. Uh-huh. I have Persona Five Royal. My friend actually got it for me yeah. in the Steel Book uh, for PS4, and I think I will definitely get it on Switch eventually because I just think I like having that option mm-hmm. to replay it. I've been really loving playing Persona Four Golden on the Steam Deck. So like Persona on a portable platform is like that's been the dream for so long. Yeah. It's kind of sad that it's finally here and I don't think it's like hit me yet. Mm. So anyway, I know the port is good. I got it for a friend of mine. I'm excited. I'm so happy that people can finally play this game that haven't had a way to until now. Are there any like new additions or changes to it? I haven't read that much about it. I don't know. I don't think so. As as far as yeah. I've heard, it's more just that it's available everywhere. It's been really interesting because there's like an advertising blitz for this thing that I think Microsoft is paying for because all of the ads say like available on Game Pass because it just yeah. straight to Game Pass which is cool but like every major city in the world has some kind of big persona 5 thing happening right now which is so funny that's awesome i feel like it's gonna have a second resurgence because honestly i think it's kind of amazing that this series has become a mainstream hit i've said that many times but like there's something about it that's just like really intriguing at least and i think having it on something like game pass and having it just like in the air i think more people who are maybe on the fence will check it out and then immediately fall in love with it that's kind of what happened to me i i've shared my history with persona many times and like my first time seeing Persona was not a fancy billboard for Persona 5 Royal on Switch. <laughs> it was over the shoulder of my friend's cousin playing his PSP. And it was Persona 3 where they <laughs> shoot themselves in the head to summon the Persona. So I was like, what is this? So like for years I've been like, dis- I was disturbed and intrigued by the series until finally 5 came out. And I was like, I got, I just got to know at this point, like yeah. what is this game? Yeah. Now you have Joker and Smash, you've got billboards. It's mainstream in a way that is exciting. It's like the band you always loved putting out the album that everyone downloads or listens to. Yeah. It's great. It's it's a cult hit becoming a hit hit, which I think is a thing that doesn't happen <laughs> very often, but it's very cool that it's happening to this. Without compromising what made the series good. Like it's still just as weird as it was and just as you Yeah, know, that's the yeah. weird thing, is it's the same game. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like nothing has changed here. It's not like, oh, this is another sequel to Persona and that's the one that's getting all the attention. It's the same game that came out on the PlayStation 4 has now just been re-released to other platforms and is now like a major hit, uh, which is honestly really cool. So I've been playing it on Switch. As you mentioned, the port is perfect. Like I really like no discernible difference between at least the PS4 version and this. I'm sure there are like I'm sure if you're like pixel peeping out there, uh, you could probably spot the differences. I'm sure the textures are lower res or something. Thing, but uh, I haven't noticed at all. I'm still playing it on the same gigantic TV I have, and it still looks great. I will say, and I'm sorry in advance for what this is going to do to people. I feel like this is like people's uh, Winter Soldier activation words, hypothetically. It looks so fucking good on the OLED switch. It is <laughs> in, it is like the reason to upgrade to an OLED switch, and it honestly makes yeah. me so excited for 3 and 4 to drop on Switch yeah. as well, because, I mean, as I've said many, many, many times, I've been waiting for 
for the Switch to become the Vita 2. And as soon as Persona 4 Golden is on there, like the dream is alive. But having Persona 4 Golden on the Switch with an OLED screen specifically is like the dream. I didn't even consider that Persona 5 was going to look this good also. But that yeah. that heavy contrast between the reds and the, and the like true deep blacks where the pixels just turn off on the screen is stunning on this yeah. thing yeah it's so cool i mean pulling up the menu in persona 5 is fun i feel yeah. like that game <laughs> i feel like a lot of rpgs as early as final fantasy 4 there has been an interest in veering away from turn-based combat to real time mm-hmm. but i think you know like with any game design like there's something that is informed by the limitations and then that becomes its own style and its own thing you can do well separately from yeah. what the intention was so i think persona 5 is a modern example of like you can do turn-based combat and make it feel just as exciting as real time with yeah. like stylish menus and stylish animations and like really strategic planning. It's awesome. It's not a hot take. It's one of the best RPGs you could play. It's a long game and it does have a bit of a slow start, but if anything about it is intriguing, I think you'll have a great time. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to kind of go in like it's it's worth knowing what the game is. It's sort of hybrid of like a life sim and a dungeon crawler. And I do think the life sim part I would say that's one of the many reasons why it's so popular mm-hmm. because I think we're, it just came out at a time where like that style of game is is largely sought after. So there weirdly is this Venn diagram between like Persona 5 and like Stardew Valley or Animal Crossing. Yeah. Where like, you know, as much of the game is about the story of rebellion and justice and uh, you're fighting demons in the head of of your weird gym teacher. Uh, there's also like, what am I doing today after school? Like, what do I want to level up? Who do I want to get to know better? You know, that that loop is really well done. And it's that makes it, you know, these games are really long, but it makes it fly by because like you're so caught in the loop of like any game where you can plan a schedule. Time just melts. I don't know what it is, but like yeah. eight hours of a, of a Metroidvania, more on that soon, feels like 30 hours of Persona. And that's meant as a compliment to both. It just, it's weird. <laughs> it's weird how time how time passes in certain genres. Yeah, I, w- I will say um, just one of the things that this game does so well is, is that life sim element. Specifically, I forgot how well the opening kind of preps you for that, where yeah. you, you move into the top floor of a guy's cafe uh, who like <sighs> takes you in to be very nice to you. Sotaro is like my one of my favorite characters in video games. He's awesome. Yeah. But specifically, like he takes you to the school that you're going to go to and like introduces you to the principal and stuff. And they're like, make sure you're here on time tomorrow. And then the next morning when you wake up, you literally just need to like figure out how to get to school. You using the absolutely wild train subway system (laughs) in in Tokyo, which like is really good to be clear. They have an incredible public transit system, but they don't tell you at all how to get there. They just tell you like, go to this line, transfer to this station, go to this line, transfer to this station. Then you're at school and you just need to figure out how to maneuver your way through like these tunnel systems that connect all that stuff. And it took me like 25. Like I got so lost in the subway system trying to find the Ginza line specifically. Yeah, it feels like a joke. I feel like it's like a a parody of public transit in Tokyo. I've never been to Tokyo, but it reminded me so much of like we are both from northern New Jersey. We're very close to New York by train. And like the first time I went to visit friends in the city, like via train, and like the, the written instructions I was given from my older sister, like transfer at Secaucus Junction, go to, you know, Times Square, take the one, two, three, or six. Like yeah. 
you're given too many options and none of them are available somehow. <laughs> you end up like on the seven. You're like, why am I here? Yeah. So I love that part. Even though it's like, it's just getting stuck. The other thing that I forgot is that Joker, the protagonist of Persona 5, he is originally from like a small town, but has moved to Tokyo for a variety of reasons. Yeah. People call him country boy a lot yeah. in the beginning of the game. In Persona 4, it's the opposite. You're a guy like from the big city who's yeah. going to this rural town. I think that's like a fun flip. Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, though, it's just as convoluted to get around the, the weird rural town as it is Tokyo. <laughs> uh, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm I am so happy. I mean, this is like one of the reasons I've wanted these games on Switch is just so other people could play them. And it also just feels like a great platform for this experience because a lot of it is visual novel-esque. There's a lot of, especially early on, there are a lot of, just a lot of dialogue. And it's all good, but like there's, it's almost more watching a show than playing a game at times. For, yeah, Yeah. I would say for about like two to three hours, it feels that way, Uh, which is uh, still where I'm at. I'm still in those like first like two to three hours at the moment, but it's been really great. My recommendation, if this is maybe your first Persona game or something, is I would turn on the audio automatic dialogue button so you don't have to like press a every time somebody's done speaking and honestly i think the japanese voice acting is great but just like switch it to english or whatever your native language is i guess right at the top and just literally watch it like a show for a while until you get into the place where you can start to decide what you're doing on a day-to-day basis yeah. and you can take things at your own pace because you're playing at the game's pace for a while in the beginning. yeah and royal has made that better like they've definitely sped it up compared to the original five yeah but yeah i would say like until you are given a deadline which i won't spoil what that means but until Mm -hmm. you're given a deadline the game hasn't even begun yeah uh which again takes like at least two maybe up to six hours yeah it takes a long time (laughs) my advice too if you're if you've been wanting to get into persona but you don't know where to start five is definitely the one five royal specifically but if even five royal feels too daunting fire them through houses is right there and (laughs) i honestly think that that is one of the best games to like prep you for what persona is because it's a very similar gameplay loop it just you know change real time or excuse me change turn-based combat with like tactics Mm -hmm. and uh they're very similar also i think with persona 5 royal do not refrain from looking at guides I think like find spoiler free guides because a lot of the game like doesn't really you won't intuitively know a lot of stuff because as much as the game does try to do better than three and four by doing anything (laughs) to point you in the right direction. There's still a lot of stuff where it's like, oh, like I have to get a part time job at the beef bowl shop to meet the sun arcana guy who only shows up on these days. And like, I think there is an element of like as ironically as long as these games are if you like it you're going to play it again yeah and i do kind of like sort of akin to mass effect there's this idea of like this is just how my playthrough went like i don't think you need to min max and like unlock every confidant i do think it's kind of fun to like gravitate towards what genuinely interests you and the characters you want to learn more about but i do think that like having a, a framework to navigate is also helpful and the game lacks like like i didn't really understand how to play Persona 5 until like halfway through the first Mm -hmm. time. There were a lot of days where I just went to bed right away and I'm like kicking myself in retrospect. I'm like, there's so much you could have done that you like needed to do. And for context, like just very brief overview of the mechanics, the characters in your party are all tied to an arcana of tarot, which like is so my shit. It's like one of the reasons I love Persona. And basically as you get to know them better, 
you'll unlock levels in their relationship that will show you kind of a vignette about them and the story that they're going through. And it will also give you certain mechanics in battle. So largely for your party members, they all have their unique thing, but it basically makes them better in combat, you know, overall. Whereas there are other characters that are outside the party, like Sojuro, for example, who's like your guardian in this cafe. A lot of his confidant level is about like getting the ability to make coffee and curry and mm-hmm. like those items will they are consumables that can replenish sp which is your mana which there's no way to directly replenish sp usually in a dungeon but basically like items that replenish sp are really valuable so like all of a sudden your relationship with sojuro is actually benefiting the experience similar to there's a guy who like owns an airsoft store and there's also a doctor and like getting to know them will unlock like huge benefits to the sort of weapon store and like item store or equivalents also most of the stories are just great like, it's such a joy to like get a deeper understanding of all these characters that exist in the world and i appreciate that five has a a little bit more work put into the characters that are outside of the party which i like, like it's cool to see like this person that has no idea like that i'm fighting the god of death after school is like also part of the story and is also helping me in their own way and that's what these stories are all about is like it truly is the power of friendship but like gamified and it works so well with with the really heavy things these games tend to tackle i think it it balances out nicely that like the sort of power friendship cliche feels earned because of what these characters are going through Mm. despite never finishing this game i have found myself constantly listening to the music uh yeah. like in the background while working like th- there's a lot of youtube videos that are like rainy mood plus oh yeah beneath the mask rainy day eight hours yeah exactly yeah. yeah like i listen to that all the time so for some reason i've always known that when this game eventually hit a portable platform for me being able to play this game in bed before going to sleep uh would just kind of like pavlovian response me into this like feeling of relaxing just because that's usually what i'm listening to while i'm working also yeah uh and confirmed that is exactly what happens uh, and I'm, I'm so stoked about it uh i did have this moment where i really had this like oh shit i'm back kind of thing which was such a strange moment where i went down into the subway because i was trying to get to a place and i missed a train by like a second and then just like had to sit there for about a minute and wait for the next train to show up and just sitting there listening to the music waiting for the train to show up and watching all these people like kind of shuffling around the subway station i was like yeah this is this is what persona <laughs> is to me like there's so obviously it's bombastic and huge and like tries to be extravagant and is so stylish at all times but this moment of just sitting in the train station waiting for the next subway to show up was like it uh so i don't know i'm very i'm very happy this is out it's worth mentioning it's on game pass as well um, yes. but also hit pc so if you have a if you have a pc or a steam deck you can play it on that as well and it's a uh, steam deck verified so it runs yeah. great on the steam deck apparently that's yeah that's maybe where i'll get it honestly but we'll see we'll see what happens yeah i i said this i forget where but i said this somewhere uh but my thing about the steam deck is i really like it and i think it's great as a handheld thing but i feel really nervous whenever i put it next to my bed when i go to sleep mm. like i I feel like in my sleep I'm it's gonna, almost too fragile yeah yeah it's like this giant chunky thing but it also feels like if i drop it it's going to shatter into a billion pieces <laughs> and i've destroyed a computer whereas the switch i don't feel that way literally at all uh so for games that i feel like i
like I'm going to play before bed, the Switch is always going to be the go-to for me. And Persona yeah. very much has always been that. Um, also, I think the docking is more of a, like, we actually both just got our uh, Steam Deck docks, which I'm very excited about. Sure did. But I feel like the, the Switch dock is like a proven thing. It's like, I know this is going to work. I know, like, I'm going to have no issues with this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what they built the system around. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know who that was. Uh, Third host. Anyway. Anyway, shit's good yeah. uh, and excited for the other ones to come out. And I'm going to try and very uh, slowly, but also quickly, I don't know, make my way through Persona 5 before three and four hit the switch as well. Yeah, I'm really curious which one is yours. because I feel like you've played enough of all of them to like know that you are a fan of the series and yeah. like you like all of them for what they're doing. But I feel like everyone has one, you know, five is mine. But honestly, earlier this year, we had our friends Alana Oaken and Callie Barth Dwyer and myself. The three of us did a patron bonus for persona three four and five which has kind of been an idea i've had for a long time and i think you and i have our own plans for doing a persona episode together yeah but i feel like so much of my friendship with those two is like rooted in that series Mm. that i was like we should do something together and also i just love the idea of having an episode for all three but because these games are never ending i of course haven't played persona 3 portable or all of persona 4 golden so i weirdly still in some way haven't played all three yeah even though i have there is that hard drive article right that's like huge persona fan excited to play the game for the first time (laughs) Um, which is like the ongoing goof because those games are so fucking long but at the risk of turning this into another persona episode i'll just say one thing about it that i i feel like i'm going to connect more with persona 4 than 5 just thematically because five is about imbalances and power and jumping into the heads of like people who are abusing the power imbalances that they've kind of lucked themselves into or you know for whatever reason and and just like creating horrible situations for people based on that power um and and removing it from their heads literally like inception uh whereas four is more about like looking at yourself in the mirror and accepting yourself and like getting over the things that you're struggling with personally and i I think that that's going to be a thing that i'm more interested in thematically than five even though five has more interesting stuff going on i think in terms like both visually obviously but also like the life sim stuff i think in five is kind of hard to beat yeah Um, but i I, but i think four overall as a story is going to be the one that i connect with more i'm excited to to hear about that yeah because i mean i love all three of them dearly five was my first and i feel like i overall just find it to be the best time but honestly like having completed all of them three sticks with me the most like, I think moment to moment, it's the weakest. But like when you finish that game, it all kind of comes together in a way that I'm like still thinking about constantly. And I really hope the the port I don't I don't have anything to back this up, but I hope that the port of Persona 3 Portable has some kind of quality of life improvements, even if it's not like a remake or anything like I just feel like that game deserves a larger audience for what it's saying about life. Like, actually, <laughs> I feel like four and five, like you don't have to beat to get what it's about but with three i feel like it really does like all come to a singular point in in the finale yeah Uh, which is really it's really cool if you can push through to see it yeah i'd like to get there i I agree with you it it needs some touching up because there's some stuff like mechanically that i think is gonna create a lot of friction for people yeah 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 i feel like the the easiest thing would be to recommend that people go three four five because like the quality of life improvements get better with each game but also these games are so long that like there's a possibility (laughs) that you'll just play the one and be like i'm good on persona actually and then in that case five is the one so if you yeah if you don't want to be totally spoiled and have trouble going back i do think four golden is probably the best middle ground uh mm-hmm. in terms of like it's honestly even from uh because i i had only played original persona 4 for the ps2 before recording that episode and now i'm about a third of the way into golden but uh basically the jump there is pretty huge so like 
gold then does feel more approachable and more modern, um, but is not like the jump from four golden even to vanilla Persona Five is like night and day. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like Five does just feel like the truest. Like it feels like it's what the series has always wanted to look like and to play like, mm-hmm. and it feels like they finally got it all, which I think is why it's such a huge hit. You know, because four was like four was big in the U.S. Like three, I think had kind of a cult following. Four was big, like amongst people that liked the genre, and then five became, like you said, like a mainstream hit. Yeah, four was the set for five being a spike. You know, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, this was supposed to be its out announcement, and it's been twenty minutes, which is a testament <laughs> to how Persona affects the passage of time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. In that case, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk about other new video games. Sounds good to me. Bye bye. Steven, there's a new game out that I've been very excited to talk about for literally months. Uh, It's called Marvel Snap. It's out on iOS and Android and also PC via Steam, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. I do need to do my usual disclaimer. I'm an employee of Marvel Entertainment. Everything I say and do does not reflect the views of my employer. I should also mention that although I like know people on the Marvel Games team, I don't have any insider information about this game uh, outside of being a person who was playing the beta for a long time. The game has been in early access in a couple countries around the world for a couple months at this point, since like early summer, late spring. And I was lucky enough to take part in like the beta test for the rollout in the rest of the world a couple months ago. So I've been playing this game for a long time at this point already, uh, which I, I think gives me a pretty unique I think, spin on on where this game is at by launch, which I'm really excited to talk about. But I was talking to you about this yesterday or two days ago. I don't remember when, but I, I feel like I've been kind of like Paul Revere about this game <laughs> where I've been like running through the streets, warning people who I know it's going to affect deeply because yeah. at the end of the day, it's worth just setting this up. This is by a team called Second Dinner, um, which is comprised of a lot of the key members of the team that created Hearthstone at Blizzard. So if you ever had like a Hearthstone phase, uh, this is like gonna kind of just fall directly into your lap as a thing that you're gonna like pretty much immediately because a lot of the conversations that the developers have had with the press about the making of this game really is about like there are things that they're pretty open about saying like we made some mistakes when making Hearthstone. There are some things here and there that I think we could have improved on and we wanted to make a follow up to that that improved on all of those things and was like mobile first uh, specifically. We wanted it to be like a thing that you could carry around with you a thing that you could play very quickly and and a thing that was and this is going to be I think a big talking point. A thing that was monetized in a way that felt like I would say not predatory uh, the way Hearthstone was. Um, You and I have talked on and off the show and I think we're about to also just about our our phases with Hearthstone, but the thing that always really rubbed me the wrong way about that game was like you could spend a lot of money on opening booster packs, which are essentially loot boxes, not get any of the cards you want, and then the cards that you do get or the cards that you did want in the first place get phased out from season to season anyway and become useless. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff in that game that I think was really rubbing me the wrong way, despite a lot of the things that worked about it. It was very sticky. It was very good. It was very well designed. Even as a person who wasn't a huge like Warcraft fan or didn't know anything about that lore, I found myself playing Hearthstone a lot for like multiple years. So the announcement of Marvel Snap, I think, was very interesting because this was a team that went and made this game, made like a a really early test version of this game and then was kind of shopping it around and seeing like who wanted to 
take part in this because they were like, we made a game that is really sticky and really fun, even without like any recognizable characters or anything going on here. Um, and that's when Marvel swooped in and was like, we're going to uh, <laughs> we're, we're going to say yes to this, to this dress. And um, I think I honestly, truly, I think it's one of the best games I played this year. I've been thinking that for months at this point, like within my first week of playing it, I felt very strongly that this is going to usurp a lot of other games that I've been playing. That is still the case months later. I'm still playing it almost daily. And on top of that, I can't wait to talk about it. And I can't wait to see how you feel about it, because I've been really excited for you to get your hands on it uh, since, I don't know, June. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot to say. I will start by saying that I'm having a great time with it. But (laughs) what comes to mind, there's a Patton Oswalt stand up joke about Cheetos in which he says, (laughs) no matter how big the bag of Cheetos is, I will finish it. If it's like a travel size thing, Mm -hmm. I will finish it. If it's like an economy sized, you know, Sam's Club bag, I will also finish it. And it reminds me of how I feel about collectible card games in general, because this game, (laughs) this game has a very friendly pitch. It's like, oh, your decks are only 12 cards. The matches are only six turns like it, you know, play a match, go on with your day. And what I've learned, having played an absurd Persona-esque amount of Marvel (laughs) Snap in a few days, is that... It doesn't matter how long the matches are or how many cards are in my deck. If if it's a good card game, I will play it for four hours in the first sitting. It yeah. doesn't matter how you know if it's a if it's a four hour long single game of Magic the Gathering or if it's four rounds of Hearthstone or or Marvel Snap. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I felt the need to share that, but I just feel like the only thing that I feel that's insidious about the game is that it's like yeah, matches are short, but you're gonna it's the civil one more turn thing like, it really 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 is they completely nailed it yeah i really like the short length of matches to be to be clear but i mean you're gonna do at least four you know and yeah it's hard to not play a lot of rounds uh yeah. every time you sit down to play it i wanted to briefly go over my and i'd love to hear yours as well but i want to briefly go over my history with these kind of games because i feel like i've had a weirdly turbulent time, even though I love them. And I think it will (laughs) highlight what I like about Marvel Snap. So I think when we were kids, and we talk about this a lot, actually, in our Pokemon Red and Blue bonus, but like I had Pokemon cards, but I had no idea how to play them. Like Mm -hmm. I, I specifically remember like, you know, being eight years old and being at recess and people playing Pokemon cards as if they were playing Pokemon the game. So there was no like use of energy. There was no like turns. It was just, I use this move. And if you had Charizard, you just won basically. (laughs) So that was my first like formative experience was, was essentially lies. That was my, my first emotion with, with these card games. Mm -hmm. Um, then I got magic, the gathering. Uh, ah, yes, that magic. (laughs) Ah, that magic. Uh, At summer camp, it was it was a summer energy to magic. At summer camp, my friend uh, from the Big Apple uh, was really into magic, and he got me into it. And I mm-hmm. started to get some of the cards. And honestly, what I loved most about magic and Pokemon still was the artwork. I just thought the artwork was so cool. I mean, yeah. magic has like unbelievable artists working for them, and even Pokemon cards. Like there was a like it wouldn't just be a PNG of Squirtle. Like there would sometimes be like watercolors. There would sometimes be like like a, a shot of a stop motion set like they yeah. really had fun with a it, lot of I, different styles yeah, yeah. 
That's really cool. And I really liked that. And and Magic, I actually learned how to play, which is kind of ironic because it's way harder. That, like Pokemon was meant to be the like approachable version of Magic, but I learned Magic first. And I got into it, but I remember I met the Magic dudes at the summer camp. You know, the guys who asked to look at my binder and just scoffed. Like uh-huh. flipping through the pages. I remember, I might have said this already because it's traumatized me, but I remember distinctly one of the older kids who's probably like a year older, but at that age, it's like this giant was looking at my binder of magic cards and he went, why is Raging Goblin in your binder? And I still don't know like what he was mad about or that it, like that has stuck with me. So the first emotion is lies and the second is is mockery. Those are my leading emotions with card games. And then I just sort of stopped playing magic for years. It wasn't even a thing I thought about until college. Mm. Uh, where one summer day I was sick and I was with my two housemates. I lived in like an off-campus apartment with a few people and I was home and we were talking, we were reminiscing about magic. And then I was like, you know what? Like I, I have like a bunch of decks growing dust in my room back home. Like what about next time I go home, I'll bring back magic with me. Yeah. That's what I did. And we started playing and it was a lot of fun, but I only had like three decks from like 1999 so eventually mm-hmm. we like ran through all the possibilities and then either myself or someone else was like, what if just for shits and giggles, we bought a booster pack just to like <laughs> oh add some variety yeah. to these decade old decks. Dangerous. And that immediately led like a week later, every person in that house was very into magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot of fun because I feel like that was my senior year of college. So like I was getting ready to graduate and we were all kind of ready to move on. And it was a nice way to like share a bond with people that were already starting to all move into different directions yeah and i was really into it like it, it became like a hobby for that year but then one of my housemates got like really good and i remember <laughs> he came back from a tournament and he was holding like a trophy and a bunch of big boxes of prize cards oh my god and he went expressionlessly i won <laughs> I beat everyone (laughs) and not because of him, but at that point seeing it's okay. Like it is no longer fun to play against my housemates because either people have thrown in the towel or they've gone pro Mm -hmm. and I'm in this awkward middle ground where like, I'm definitely giving this enough time and money, money I don't have in college to (laughs) be good at this game and to make new decks. But I also don't know if I want this to become like a permanent part of my life. Graduation is a month away. What do I do? Yeah. And sadly, I decided to drop it. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to find another community to play this with. I kind of liked it being like just our thing. So maybe it's time to let go. And uh, and I moved on. But a year later, after my move to Chicago, Uh Hearthstone drops. (laughs) And... I got real into Hearthstone and it was kind of a rekindling of that because all of a sudden like you and other friends of mine were also playing Hearthstone and especially after moving to Chicago it was a great way to like stay in touch with friends and yeah you and I had like just reconnected around that time as well because that was yeah you and I we've mentioned this on the show before but you and I lived in the same town again for the first time I guess since high school for one brief year before you moved to Chicago yeah so yeah you and I got into Hearthstone around the same time Exactly. And it was really pleasant. I remember distinctly that like matches, I could be wrong, but I remember them being like 15 minutes. Sometimes they could be shorter, sometimes they could be longer, but it was like pretty easy to get in one or two games like during lunch Mm -hmm. at work. Mm -hmm. And I remember my first job in Chicago was uh, remote. So like it was a really nice ritual to kind of break up the day. Yeah. And that was like my game for a while. And then 
it started to feel like, okay, like at first I kind of gave this game the benefit of the doubt with the booster packs. I'm like, I've done this before. Magic was the same way. Like you kind of have to buy new cards. And and I remember it being fairly generous early on with like getting new things. This is also in a pretty early era of like, I don't know if I had a frame of reference for like what was predatory or not at this time yeah. in like 2013. You know, I didn't have Fire Emblem Heroes. I didn't know what was bad. Uh, so <laughs> I remember like that feeling of like, oh man, I am sp- like now that I'm like out of college and like have a job and need to like be responsible like this feels a little bit weird yeah and then also there was like i think it was goblins versus gnomes where suddenly every card was like do random damage to two chickens that it was just like it became like chaos and it was like really hard to build a deck that made sense yeah even without like knowing the meta or whatever it just felt like all of a sudden things were like wildly out of proportion with each other Mm -hmm. and then the what you mentioned there was the pivot to standard play which is what something magic does where essentially imagine the gathering every season there are cards that are considered standard play that like you can you know legally in competitive play use those in a deck and then there's the new cards that are cycled in for that season and sometimes like they'll stick around like there are some magic cards that have been in rotation since the 80s like ravenous rats which i, I had a rat deck so what and i kind of get it on magic's end because i'm like that game has been around since the 80s there's no possible way they could balance hundreds and hundreds of cards and yeah. and there are people that play like no rules just use any card you have and like that's also very fun but in like competitive magic i get that they kind of have to like keep it in a rotation yeah that being said it is also a pretty good excuse to make people keep buying new cards you know yeah you know so i i kind of i get it from a design perspective but it also can lean predatory and it felt that way in hearthstone where like suddenly you know half of my cards were no longer viable and the game was so immediately unhinged with anything goes that those matches weren't fun either yes because like you know so it just i just sort of lost enthusiasm for it but part of me has always been like wanting like that game again i'm like even during the show Every now and then I'm like, should I get back into Hearthstone? And I immediately say no out loud. Mm. I have downloaded Hearthstone on more than one occasion to with with the intention of maybe bringing it back to the show sometimes to see like what it's like as a new player experience now, because a lot of the stuff that you and I are talking about has changed since then. Yeah, this Um, is that was almost a decade ago at this point. Yeah, yeah, they still are rotating cards in and out of what standard play is, uh, which is always going to be a thing that rubs me the wrong way, I think, for the most part, because my my experience with Hearthstone was very similar to yours, where like I, I jumped into it, loved it, loved it, loved it, played it with a bunch of people. I was like very actively playing it a lot, but simultaneously was at this point where I had like my first office job I I was like working at a cafe and then I I quit that and got a gig just like working like the shittiest job I could find just like in a a space that like paid me enough to pay for my apartment yeah Um, and uh was still spending way too much money on booster packs in Hearthstone and and was recognizing it while I was doing it I was like this is actually dangerous and there's something going on here psychologically that I think is bad as you were saying it was like my first blush with like I think loot boxes are bad (laughs) for yeah for people's brains and the first time they introduced standard play and all of those cards went in the trash pretty much was the clear indication for me that I needed to stop playing Hearthstone because yeah. at, as soon as that happened as soon as that happened one time I was like no more for me and I, I bailed since then I, I really have only gone back once or twice and, and the other card games that I played since then are all the like deck building roguelikes that have kind of popped up yeah that's a good point like say the spire I, I can't they're yeah. a different itch though like I, I as much as no, I totally like, yeah I love say the spire I think that's like the gold standard for deck builders I loved hand of Gilgamesh 
mech. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that they're like that is always a genre I really love and admire. But yeah, it's not quite like Magic or Hearthstone. Yeah, it's it's definitely scratching a different a different spot. I've also heard about like I don't know I can't verify this, but like I remember as as long ago as like when we did our games of the decade episode in 2019. I remember Hearthstone was was one of them for for I think 2014. Yeah, and uh, we shared like a version of that experience of like being really into it and then bouncing. And I remember a number of people reached out to me after that episode being like, Hearthstone's actually like great again. And they've like moved mm. away from a lot of that stuff. And I, I see that in like the comments in places, not yeah. necessarily about our show, but like it does seem like they may have rectified that, but like, I, I still don't know if I'm going to go back. Yeah. A big part of the Hearthstone experience for me also was I was spending so much time on YouTube and Twitch watching people like deck crafting for the meta and realizing that I was never going to be that guy. You know, like I, yeah. I was never going to be the guy who was specifically going out crafting the cards to make a meta deck and then have that meta change the next time the game updated and then throw out all that stuff and then need to like build a new deck. It was the moment of truth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like the moment when you're taking it seriously enough that you need to be watching YouTube videos was like a step too far for me. Um, And to be clear, that is a thing that will happen and can happen in Marvel Snap and is happening already and has been happening since the beta. But I have been purposely ignoring that and I'll get into why later. But yeah, that that very much was kind of one of the one of the death knells for me with Hearthstone was like, I'm spending all of my time watching YouTube videos about this game. I don't think I'm getting any better and I'm spending too much money on it and they're throwing (laughs) my cards in the trash. Uh, So really, it's mostly negatives. There was there was a brief moment there was working out the game that you and I have talked about a little bit off the show and I think on the show briefly that feels like it's getting close to this is Legends of Runeterra yeah that was that we had a <laughs> we had like a league era uh, on the show I actually I'm still I'm still playing Wild Rift I'll say it um <laughs> but uh we were I think it was right around when Arcane came out and there were also like a bunch of League of Legends spin-off games yeah. like uh, what was the like sort of RPG one that we liked Ruined King Ruined King that was great and like there were rules there were there were suddenly like a lot of games that were sort of in that universe that were really intriguing because like you don't really get lore playing Wild Rift or regular League of Legends, but these games seem to like just be taking bits and pieces and kind of focusing on them. And I think yeah. Rune King was a really cool example of like what else you could do with these characters that have they've yeah. been. This world could support different kinds of stories, which I think yeah. I think, you know, is, is always the sign of great world building is that like you could tell any kind of story you want in here. Um, yeah. Rune King and Arcane were both both individual great examples of that yeah absolutely and we had a listener reach out being like if you want a good league game that also is very lore centric Legends of Runeterra is great and it's sort of like it seems like the answer to Hearthstone's problems like that game yeah. kind of goes out of its way to not you know it, it has its own it inundates thing. Like, you with gifts yeah it's and it <laughs> everywhere it's like you know it's the only thing to spend money on is cosmetics and it's like really like niche cosmetics so like mm-hmm. you kind of get everything you need and that, that game is awesome and I could see my going back to it it felt a little busy it felt like a little bit hard to grasp right away I imagine if I put time into it and like that game is a very devoted following so I imagine if you like have the patience to learn more all at once yeah there's probably a lot of payoff but what I've been really enjoying about Marvel Snap is just how immediately simple it is but it also broadcasts complexity every game yeah so I guess just to talk a bit about how it works and please step in if I'm missing something because totally you're the pro here but uh basically you make a deck of 12 cards uh games are six turns usually 
And mm-hmm. uh, similar deal with the Hearthstone where like cards cost a certain amount of energy. On turn one, you have one energy. On turn two, you have two. Uh, there are course abilities that can manipulate that, but like that's kind of how it plays. Yeah. What I really love, though, is that unlike Runeterra or Hearthstone or Magic, which are all about attacking the other player, like in Magic, uh, you are canonically a planeswalker. Uh, <laughs> which is someone who can like open rifts. I don't know if I'm sure I'm wrong and someone's going to tell me, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that in magic, like the act of playing a game of magic is a planeswalker recalling memories at different <laughs> locations, which is why the mana is like mountains, forests, islands, and swamps. Cause they're fascinating. Like, That's so interesting. Oh yes. The rats that once gathered here and they could like manifest them at a whim. Yeah. Which is so you're basically having like a a debate on how a story went, basically, in a game of magic. I love that. That's very (laughs) cool. Anyway, I love uh, any game. I think I've said this on the show. I love any game that contextualizes why battles are happening. My favorite has always been Destiny, where there's like a really, really over energetic guy who runs like a battlefield and all the PvP matches are technically just like the Guardians training against one another to be able to better like do raids and like do PvE stuff later. Uh, Brilliant brilliant idea Uh, absolutely and in magic like you as a player as a planeswalker have 20 health at the start so like you essentially want to get your opponent to zero or the negative um and in runeterra it's pretty similar uh you have like a nexus similar to league that like you need to destroy the opponent's nexus and in hearthstone i think they took the planeswalker idea but made it like warcraft characters so you mm-hmm. are jaina or uh, rexar i believe the hunter yeah other characters and they have you know abilities and stuff like that but what i love about marvel snap it's very gwent where it's not about necessarily attacking the other player or even other cards but there are three zones that have spots for up to four cards and essentially every card has a power value and by the end of the game the higher power value in each zone wins and the player who controls the most zones wins yeah so what i like about that is that there's always a feeling in hearthstone or in magic where if someone has a deck that's basically built around going like, no, you can't. It's just not fun. Like, <laughs> there are so many cards in Magic that are like, okay, I play a card and someone going, uh-uh, I tap two islands to say, you can't do that. And like, <laughs> that is part of the game. Mm-hmm. But I like, I think it makes, even if you get creamed, I like that every game of Marvel Snap feels like you built a little thing. Yes. You know, it's like, they can't take that away from you. Even if you're destroyed in the double digits, it's like, I put Domino and Dead and Dead, Deadpool's not in it. And uh, Nightcrawler. Oh, he is? Yeah. I put, I put, I almost said Deadcrawler. That's even better. I put Deadcrawler in this <laughs> in the central zone. You can't take that away from me. But what's so, the, the magic ingredient to me is that, of course, all the cards have like, you know, oh, when you play another card here, it gets more power. Or like, you can move this card once to another zone any turn. So there's already like things being broadcast. But I think yeah. what keeps every game of this so fascinating is that the locations all have their own thing too that's revealed throughout the match so Mm -hmm. um the first turn one area will be revealed and it might say like 
on this tile, all cards have plus one power. Or it might say like on turns four, five, and six, you can't play cards here. Or it might be like all cards that are played here are destroyed. Yeah. So all of those make you navigate. It almost feels like you're navigating the areas and like keeping an eye on what your opponent is doing versus like always playing counter to your player. Yeah. Or to your opponent. And I think the thing that's also so fascinating is like those what sounds like a universal negative could actually really help you. So one of the first cards I got was Carnage, whose ability is when you play Carnage, he destroys all other cards in that area and gains plus two power for each one destroyed. So if there's an area that's like two negative two ninjas are here, that's like perfect for Carnage because he's going to get powerful and also deplete the negative ones. And then there are cards like Wolverine that like whenever they're destroyed or discarded, you play them somewhere. So all of a sudden you're like, oh if i put wolverine and carnage together that goes perfectly mm-hmm. um and there's so many moments like that where i think the game does a good job broadcasting synergy but it's also kind of a trick because i think that if you're coming from a hearthstone or magic background you're gonna build the deck with the assumption of like okay on turn one on turn two on turn three but 12 cards is just enough that like you may not draw one or two cards yeah usually in magic if you want to make sure you draw a card on turn one you'll put four you can have up to four cards of the same card in a deck mm, interesting increase your odds of getting them whereas in this game it's like it's just one of each so suddenly you have to change your perspective from building up to something like having like a play style that depends on an order and having a deck that just works in the moment and can react to what is happening with these areas because you know some are as wild as like there's a seventh turn now or yeah uh, what once i one i saw once was ego which he just ego plays the living the planet game for yeah. you yeah. yeah or there's one and the wilder ones are pretty rare i've noticed like you you'll yes. you'll see the same like seven or eight usually and that will give you a pretty good frame of reference of like what to expect if you want to maybe play a card like i i've started playing cards on the unrevealed locations usually earlier mm-hmm. because often it will be like you can't play cards here right and if you've done that early then you have a leg up you exactly. control that zone exactly so this game is like way too good and it's very hard to put down and it scares <laughs> me but i think it's really well designed I, i'll be honest too like the actual like marvel of it all wasn't like a huge draw for me like mm-hmm. i i like marvel especially the comics like i've always been i remember getting marvel ultimate alliance in a pre-mcu world and like i didn't really know a ton like i knew spider-man i knew the x-men but i didn't really know like the extent of the lore that existed yeah again this is like pre thor being mainstream (laughs) right so like i think the reason i loved ultimate alliance so much was just like seeing all that stuff like going to stark tower and learning to asgard and learning about it yeah because as with all game as we were just talking about with runeterra you know uh league of legends being able to support all these different kinds of stories it's really interesting before you get into the marvel world or the dc world or any of these like you know long extended stories that have existed for literally almost 100 years at this point if you're new to that it's really cool to hear the history of it almost like going back and like reading the Cimmerillion or something and like learning the lore of Lord of the Rings all of this stuff has existed in Marvel in continuity for such a long time so being able to introduce yourself to those characters in like a really like fresh and snappy way is really (laughs) honestly very cool even me somebody who's been working at Marvel for many years and has been reading the comics for a very long time there are characters and cards that I'm getting in this game I'm like who is this where did you pull this from Claw and looking at well Claw's been in the movies Stephen played by Andy Serkis 
circus. But anyway, Domino. Domino was in the first Deadpool movie. Kazar, though. <laughs> Kazar, I had never met before. Uh, Kazar yeah. is a person who lives uh, in, in the Savage Lands. And I, I didn't know who he was. I, I'm actually reading through the uh, original X-Men run, like all the way through right now. Oh, cool. Uh, so I, I've met Kazar now, which is fun. But anyway. There are a lot of very interesting characters that they're pulling from in this game, which I really enjoyed. The thing I think that you were building up to that I've been really surprised by about this game is how well they pair abilities with the characters. Yeah. Things like, for example, Quicksilver is one of the first cards you get when you start playing this game. Quicksilver's whole thing is that he's a one energy and two co- and two power card who is always in your hand at the beginning of a game. He will jump out of your deck and into your hand at the beginning because he's so fast that he's just like where he needs to be immediately. Domino, who you just brought up who's like power canonically in the comics is that she's super lucky will always show up in your hand turn two and she's a two yeah. cost card so she always shows up immediately similarly uh, kind of in a similar vein with those first two cards america chavez is a character who can like punch her way into rifts through universes to similarly always show up where she needs to be when she needs to she's a six cost card who always shows up in your hand on turn six things like that are very interesting but then you have you know wilder cards like green goblin for example i think is a really fun one to call yeah. out who is a three cost card with negative three power and his whole thing is just being so annoying so what happens is when you play him on your side he flies over to the enemy's side and you're essentially just hitting your opponent with negative three power on whatever zone you play them in which is so fun and every card is considered in that way which i think is so special like wolverine being indestructible and like squirrel girl summoning squirrels which my first deck i just called inscription because i had carnage and all the squirrels (laughs) so like it just it was right in front of me yeah yeah. But uh, yeah, I I think that's something that I really like. And I, I also love that the art of the cards, um, I mean, there's a lot of variants you can get, but the mm-hmm. art is all comic booky, and it feels like the cards are interpretations of single panels, which I think is a really fun touch. Totally. I think that the thing about Marvel now is that like, I'm just kind of, I feel overwhelmed by it. Like, I feel like we don't, like, it's so everywhere. And I think the thing I like about Marvel and DC like you said, is this, there's this long history and I love that everyone can kind of have their own take on it. And there's like runs of different artists and authors that sort of it's, you know, it's, it's like, retelling a myth in a more yeah uh, i was about to say yeah it's our mythology it's it's stanley has said that directly i think but like the thing about the movies is i feel like it's like a singular take that is kind of broadcast as like the main thing Mm -hmm. and that has always kind of bummed me out and while i like some of those movies like it's just it's kind of uh it's turned something from this like niche thing that i was excited to learn about to something that i like kind of just ignore at this point you know Mm -hmm. and that's sad so i feel like marvel snap is actually (laughs) kind of reinvigorated my interest in these characters and in these comics you know i mean and there's still there's still i've kept up with miss marvel i love all the spider people like i'm not out they're gonna get you eventually you know like you can't be completely blind to all this stuff but i just appreciate that marvel snap feels fresh in a world that i think is regardless of how you feel about the mcu or about superheroes it's so everywhere that i'm impressed that like even as someone who's like kind of burnt out I do have like an enthusiasm and an interest in this game and in these characters. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that's worth noting and and maybe this is blasphemous for me specifically to say, but <laughs> when I first heard about this game, hearing like, oh, we're making a mobile first collectible card game with Marvel yeah. branding, like I, I, under- <laughs> yeah, like- I understand why a lot of people are hesitant to check it out, you know, yeah. because when you open up the app store and you look at the stuff that like Apple is promoting and the games tab, a lot of it is like microtransaction riddled 
nightmare stuff, you know, and and I, th- I think any entry into that space, I'm initially on the back foot. I'm a little bit hesitant to check it out. It was really, really, really wonderful to download Marvel Snap when, when the beta first launched and, and realize, like, not only is this an extremely, extremely competently and well-designed game, but it's ignoring a lot of the trappings and specifically has been built from the ground up to kind of skate around a lot of the trappings of a lot of the other stuff that I think is inherent to why you and I are more hesitant to check out more mobile stuff that's like free to play. So I I think one of the things that's probably worth mentioning about this game is the monetization structure, which kind of from the ground up has been designed to be cosmetic focused. As we were talking about with Runeterra, it's kind of a similar thing. The thing is, is that in this game, progression is gated by your upgrading your cards visually. So As you continue to play games, every time you finish a game, you'll get a bunch of what's called boosters, which is like a currency that are specifically tied to a card. So like you'll get a bunch of boosters specifically for Deadpool, for example. And when you've hit a certain number of boosters, you can upgrade your card visually. So now instead of, you know, just being like a single panel of Deadpool inside a card, he's like kind of breaking outside of the card. It's called a frame break. Uh, The next time you do it, it'll change from just like a static image to a 3D image and you can turn your phone around and like you can see Deadpool moving over over the background the next time you do that it adds you know some like kind of animated effects and so on and so on until you eventually hit infinity level of your card at which point you can then split the card out and get a variant of that card that will have cooler effects in the background so like maybe a shiny rainbow background or like it sparkles when you play it in the field or maybe it's like just the line art ink drawings of that panel of that art oh that's awesome Things like that. And that's all randomly generated, which is very cool. But what I think is really interesting is that the progression of this game is behind you just making your cards look cooler. So you're constantly investing in those cards, trying to make them look cooler. And by doing so, you're moving your way up what's called a collection level. Uh, And as you continue to make your way up this path, you will start to unlock more cards. So cards get unlocked the cooler your cards look, which I think is very fun. And at no point are you like buying a card. You're not like going into the shop and buying a bunch of booster packs so you can get a bunch of uh you know just kind of like random whatever cards like you would in hearthstone or a lot of these other other games i will say there i guess there's three currencies which you know is actually low for these types of games there (laughs) there are the boosters that are character specific which Mm -hmm. you get just by playing yeah um so like if you want them for a character if you if you have that character in your deck you'll get them pretty easily and then there are credits which are used to upgrade the card visually and then there's gold which is usually the premium currency but you can get it in addition to like the collection level there's also a battle pass there's a free one and then of course there's a premium one the free one's like pretty generous i would say like they definitely tempt you and i think the menus of this game make it look like it's a nightmare even though it's it's fairly benign that being said you can buy gold bars to buy a bunch of credits to upgrade your cards to get more cards so that's a little tricky and my initial thoughts there were like it feels like you said money was only for cosmetics but like indirectly it's for cards but there are actually timers on like you can only really buy credits with gold once per day. So while timers in mobile games are usually also fairly predatory, it does seem like there are systems in place to prevent you just from like spending hundreds of dollars to max out your collection level right away. Like it's definitely not bad, but I, I think there are like I think progression is slow enough that I have felt a little should I just buy this thing so I can get the new card. I have felt that. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to kind of speak to it, but 
you know, I mean, again, it's not it's not loot boxes. It's not like buying packs. And overall, I think the game is is fairly generous with what you get, at least early on. And yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a blast and I definitely want to keep playing. it. I did just because I've been enjoying it. There's like a welcome pack that was like two dollars that had like some things in it. So I, I got that. But like I haven't spent any other money and I have enough cards to build three concept decks and like you know I, yeah. I never feel like i'm losing because i don't have a card i'll say that like it's never like oh like i need to spend ten dollars to get spider-man to complete my control deck which i do really want spider-man i also really deck. want spider-man i haven't gotten spider-man yeah either. I, I have miles morales which i was very happy to unlock yeah I, I think one of the things that's worth noting ab- about the way progression works as well is that there's a kind of like there's multiple versions of progression. So the main thing is your collection level. So as you continue to upgrade your cards, you'll have chances to get more cards. There are a lot of cards that are currently in the game and they're split into three pools. Uh, the first pool are like the entry level cards, you know, the the like base level cards, kind of like if you were to download Hearthstone right now, like they make you play a bunch of matches and reward you with a specific set of cards that will always be available in standard play. This game is doing a very similar thing where you're going up against people and continuing to make your way up the collection rank and you're getting the same cards in the same order as everybody else in pool one so by the time you're done with pool one you will have the same cards pool two is very interesting because you're getting a set number of cards in pool two which are a little bit more powerful than the ones in in pool one some of them might replace other ones some of them won't but for the most part they're just getting a little bit more complex they're like starting to introduce new ideas and new kinds of decks that you can build around them and those get unlocked in a random order in, in in those collection ranks so you've gone from a set number of cards in a set order to a set number of cards in a random order once you hit i forget what collection level it is i want to say it's like seven or eight hundred uh, at least that's what it was for me <laughs> you start to get into pool three and pool three is you start getting random cards in a random order and you only have a chance of getting cards as you work your way up the collection level which is a thing that I don't think a lot of people have hit yet because the game is very early, but because I've been playing it for months, I've hit that. And I know a couple of people at work have also hit those levels. I've been in pool three for a while. I haven't unlocked that many cards. I'm collection level like 1400, I think, as of oh, wow. this morning. The thing about that that I think will become a, a topic of conversation as time goes on. I'm really interested to see like how Second Dinner responds to it, but also just how the larger player base responds to it is you're unlocking cards at a very slow pace once you hit pool three. And I think some people might find that frustrating when they get there because, you know, say they really want Spider-Man, I think is a great example of a pool three card that's like really great. Say you really want Spider-Man and you're still not getting Spider-Man every time you're unlocking cards, you're unlocking cards like once every two or three days at that point, even if you're playing daily, whatever, whatever, that can be frustrating. There's a flip side of this. And and I'm, I promise I'm not just like trying to look for the optimistic angle here because of my job or whatever, but this is actually how I feel about this game. Just to be very clear. I like the fact that I'm unlocking cards very slowly because every time I get a new one, I am kind of incentivized to sit with it for a while and think about how it can change my play style. If I get a card that I like was wholly uninterested in, even if it's the card that I'm unlocking today, I'm like kind of curious to build a deck around it and just see if it fits into my play style or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really interesting, it's definitely an intentional choice. It's a thing that they've talked about in interviews about the making of this game is that they want each card to feel really special when you unlock it. And this is a really interesting way of doing it. And I, and I think that's going to rub some people the wrong way. But for me personally, I found that it really works right now. One of the interesting things that's happening and one of my favorite things about this game is that every once in a while, every couple days, they'll do what's called a hot location or a featured location, which essentially makes 
one of those locations that we were talking about earlier that can show up as one of the three zones that you have to capture, it'll make it more likely to show up that day uh, for about 24 hours. So like right now, as of you and I recording, uh, Kamartage is the hot location, which means it has like a 70 to 80 percent chance of showing up every single oh, match. Oh, interesting. Kamartage yeah. does this thing where every time you play a card that has an on reveal power. So that's like when the card flips over, it'll like do an effect. So somebody like Agent 13, for example, is a really interesting card. It's a one cost card uh, with two power. When it flips over, she'll just pick a random card out of the entire pool of cards that exist and add it to your hand just completely at random, which is really fun and like super weird. Kamartage does a thing where on reveal cards will happen twice, whatever their power oh, wow. is. So you get two random cards. Exactly. So if yeah. you go and play Agent 13 there, you'll get two cards. Very cool. I love whenever those hot locations show up because I immediately will build an entire deck just around that location just for the day, just to see what it feels like. So right now I'm playing this deck that's only filled with on reveal cards like every single card of all 12 of them are all filled with things that have powers that i can now do twice because kamartage is probably going to show up in every single match (laughs) that i play for the rest of the day but that has also gotten me out of my comfort zone and adding weird cards that i never would have played for example like electro is a card that i never ever ever use but electro is a three cost one power card who gives you one max energy on top of whatever turn it is. So you get an extra energy every single turn, but on the flip side, you can only play one card per turn, which is like the big the big uh, caveat there. What's fun about playing Electro into Kamartage is now I'm getting plus two max energy per turn, which is totally wild, but I can still only play one card per turn, but that's going to make that one card all the more powerful all earlier in the match. And that's really interesting. And the fact that they can constantly add these new locations that completely change the way you play the game and specifically telling you when you open up the game, hey, this location is going to show up a lot. There was one day over the summer that I climbed up to rank 60 in like the actual like ranked play within the course of like a day because they added... Um, I think it was the I think it was the Savage Land is is the one that I'm thinking of that adds two uh one one raptors to that location. And I just built an entire deck about destroying those raptors. Yeah. Uh, which was so helpful, as you were talking about before with the the negative two ninjas. I did that with the raptors. I made I built a deck that was called Jurassic Summer that was just all about <laughs> making sh- making use of those raptors to both boost my power and like destroy the other team, uh destroy my opponent, or like give them a bunch of like garbage cards. So like I was destroying my raptors, but all also sending over a uh, green goblin, for example. So suddenly they only had one space left to fill that zone with. So I was probably going to win that zone immediately, which I think is really cool. Like those kinds of gives and takes that those locations can give, especially as they continue to add events is really cool. On top of that, every season, uh, there have been multiple seasons since the beta, but the season is r- happening right now is um, I-, I think it's called like the symbiote invasion. So that they're doing a lot of stuff that's like Venom and Carnage based. Uh, Miles Morales is like the-, the big card that they unveiled alongside that. But what they do per season is they introduce one new zone every single week to the pool of zones that can exist. So the game is constantly evolving. Like although they're adding cards slowly to the pool, uh, it's like every month they're adding one new card or two new cards to the the possibility space of cards you can unlock in pools one, two, and three, you're getting new locations every single week that will wildly change the way you play the game every single time. So it does feel fresh per match, which I think is also really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think the locations are, they struck a nice balance of, uh, of making every match unique, but also like only the really wild ones like Ego, you know, are yeah. rare. And there are also cards that can change the, like Scarlet Witch's power 
she can change what the area is, which is very helpful. Yeah, so to like, a random new location. She's like a mainstay in my deck. Another cool thing is that, and this is, I, I think the the thing with like progress and monetization, and we've talked about this off the show, is that the main issue is is just communication. Because I think that it's not, it, it took me a while to understand the concept of like upgrading visuals and what track I was progressing. And like, you know, because there's so many, there's like the, the daily and weekly missions, there's the collection level, mm-hmm. and then there's the battle pass. It's like, it all makes sense now that I know, but it's all kind of bundled together and it, it, it's hard to really track. I also kind of wish they made it easier to see which cards are upgradable because like they all are glowing even if you don't have enough to upgrade them there is and when you're looking at your cards uh you can filter them by a bunch of different things and one of the filters is upgradable. oh yeah no i know that but i mean is like they will be glowing even if you don't have enough credits they are glowing if you have enough boosters but like i still can't do it you know so there's no way to vision like i have to manually check all of them to see which ones i have enough credits to upgrade i get what you're saying yeah, so that's like just a little tedious. It's not a huge deal, but like I just think that's another issue of like visual communication. Mm-hmm. I'm, I imagine that's something they can tweak. Um, yeah, I, the, th- the big thing for me with this game is like I think it was really smart of them to launch with just the PvP like this. It's kind of the exact opposite of the Overwatch problem, I think, <laughs> where like Overwatch yeah. 2 just launched with the thing that we had all played already with like some right. s- slight tweaks to it where we really needed a differentiator there. We needed like the PVE because that was going to be the big thing about Overwatch 2. This game launching and just being like, we have proven that this multiplayer works like great and is so fun immediately means that they've built a really strong foundation for what can come later. Like I'm sure they're going to add the ability to play against friends, for example, eventually. I'm sure they're probably going to add, if I were to guess, some kind of like story stuff like Hearthstone had uh, where you're like playing against like set bots. I I loved those solo adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because a lot of other collectible card games that you can play right now have that kind of thing like rune tarot you and i were shouting out before has like a slay the spire kind of thing going on that you can play alongside the pvp which is very cool it Um, also has like character-based missions that will like it's really it's really cool it'll be like three turns and it's on this turn accomplish this with these cards but you don't know exactly how uh really fun challenges like that yeah i I feel like they've kind of set the foundation for maybe rolling stuff like that out in the future again i don't know anything about what they're actually working on (laughs) over at second dinner but it just feels like this game was pretty obviously an immediate hit i think when it came out because outside of even just the people that i was begging to check it out like i follow a lot of games industry people on twitter and a lot of them are posting screenshots of marvel snap i think there is that immediate hump you have to get over that's like the new Marvel card game is actually great. Yeah. Comma. Right. <laughs> and now I'm playing it and I also agree that it's great. You know, I think once you get over that hump, you're really going to start to enjoy it. But specifically it being a game that so many people are checking out and enjoying means that there's going to be a lot more investment, I think, in smoothing out the edges that you were just talking about, but also adding more game modes and stuff on top of it, which I'm really excited about. I'm really interested to see how this game is going to grow in the future. Yeah, um, I'm excited. I, I mean, it's it's. It's scratching an itch in a way that doesn't feel gross. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like I, I compared it to a bag of Cheetos earlier. And there is that, like, in, in the thick of Hearthstone, we both felt like, oh, this isn't good. This isn't healthy. And while yeah. this game is hard to put down, I do feel like it's because I'm genuinely enjoying it and not, like, being taken advantage of. Yeah. And this this is, I think, a big sticking point for me and something that you and I talked a little bit about with Overwatch 2. Weird that that's coming up again. Uh, with the Battle Pass, where I feel like just the inclusion of a Battle Pass in Overwatch 2 means that players are going to think about 
progression and think about playing that game differently. Whereas Overwatch 1 was about literally just playing the game and that was fun and cool and good because the game just felt really good. Overwatch 2 is about completing specific challenges so you can make your way up a battle pass. So you're playing outside of the play style that you want to try and accomplish different kinds of things, Um, which I think is frustrating for a game that is so reliant on the team working in tandem with one another. If you have never played tank before and the challenges that you get as your dailies in Overwatch 2 are making you play tank, then suddenly you're not going to be like a solid asset to your team, probably. Things like that, I think, really rubbed me the wrong way. The thing that's interesting about Marvel Snap is that the challenges that they have added to the battle pass, I don't feel like are hampering my play or or forcing me into things I don't want to be doing. Whenever it's like play three cost cards and you need to play like, you know, 33 cost cards over the course of however many matches, that's almost an invitation for me to go and look at my cards and make a whole deck that has a bunch of three cost cards just to like see what kind of fun stuff I can do, which I think is really interesting. It's it's one of the first games that I've seen that has a battle pass that I think makes me more curious about poking at the edges of the mechanics that they've laid out instead of making me feel like I'm playing against how I want to be playing initially when I'm doing stuff that's like, you know, play play cards that move. Uh, suddenly I'm out here building a deck that's, you know, focused around cards that are moving and surprise, surprise, that's also really fun. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. And I, I think that's really exciting uh, to, ha- to have a game that can have those kinds of challenges that are like forcing you into different play styles. And then the realization that everything is fun is actually really cool. And I think a really good sign of what's to come for the future. I totally agree. It's, it's a great sign. Very pleasantly surprised. I yeah. believed you, but I'm still pleasantly surprised, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And look, there was a piece of me that was also like, am I, <laughs> can I totally myself? out of it? Yeah. Like, yeah. have I tricked myself into liking this thing? So it, it's been kind of gratifying to see other people like latching onto it and being like, yeah, oh, the no, this have is actually been really cool. positive. And again, I think there is that like sort of backhanded compliment of like, I know this game sounds like a nightmare, but like it actually is great, you yeah. know? And I think it's just sort of the reputation of like big properties releasing a collectible card game on mobile. I mean, yeah, that's a that's low free to play. Yeah. yeah, that's free it's, to play. And it's like being advertised so heavily. Like, I feel like yeah. every three TikToks that I scroll through on my For You page, there's an ad for Marvel Snap now. Like, they're really, really, really pushing it. And I could see all of those factors turning people away instead of bringing them in. So I, I, I think I think the team knows that, if I were to guess, and they know that they're fighting against all of those factors. And their response to that has been, we need to make a game that's so good it proves people wrong. And they've they've done it. The, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's also, I mean, I think you mentioned earlier that you weren't really into Warcraft at all, but loved Hearthstone. And what I've realized is like, if a card game allows me to gain an interest in this world, I mean, similar with Runeterra, like, I don't really know that much about League, even though I play it. It was, it's fun to see like who these characters are and what their powers are. And like, you know, I mean, the, the first mission of that game is very much like what Arcane is about. Yeah. Where you're, where you're Jinx or Vi going through that city and, mm-hmm. It's a very different tone. It's much lighter than Arcane is. Yeah. Um, but it's still like, it was fun to recognize that and to be like, oh yeah, this is just sort of like a Gotham-esque city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know these characters well enough to kind of see like, oh, it's interesting that they're doing this with them. And uh, I'm enjoying this sort of comic book centric vibe of Marvel Snap. Yeah, it's very cool. And I'm excited. A lot of the seasons that were in the beta are going to come back. Uh, so th- there were some seasons earlier on uh, over, over the summer that I think are going to be the next couple seasons going forward after the symbiote invasion one is done. And some of the cards and locations and stuff that they focused on in those are really cool. Um, maybe I don't want to give them away, actually. Long shot is long shot there. I don't think there's a long shot card, but I'm sure there's going to be one because that he feels like obviously a card yeah. that should exist. 
feel like long shot costs four energy and it's, <laughs> it still feels like too much. You know, yeah. he's one of those cards. Yeah. There are, just to speak to something that you brought up earlier, and, and maybe this will be a little bit of a turnoff for you, but it is worth mentioning. There are some cards that destroy opponents' cards. Oh, yeah, I have Electra. Yeah, Electra destroys a one-cost card. I think it's Shang-Chi who destroys any card on the opponent's side that's over nine power. So, like, if you have a Hulk or an America Chavez or somebody there, uh, they'll get rocked, which is pretty tough. But they're few and far between, and I find that they're hard to add to your deck, which I think is helpful. Yeah, like in Magic, if you had any element of blue in your deck, you're basically just playing a game by yourself like you're just sort of mm-hmm. telling the opponent like there's a card called sleep that just like makes every card out unavailable to use uh and it's like i remember my roommate at the time like i could hear him yelling if if someone played sleep against him he had like a distinct <laughs> sleep yell he's like god damn it yeah like, he, he was such a good sport but something about sleep really got to him because i will say there are some <laughs> decks that you can build in marvel snap that make me feel that way which yeah Again, yeah. like even when I'm losing, I'm usually having a good time. But there are a couple cards every once in a while where like you can and I've done this and then immediately threw it away because I felt so dirty. But you can you can build <laughs> entire decks just with the pure purpose of annoying the person that you're up against. Yeah. You can have Iceman, who is a who's a one two card who will just increase the cost of one of the cards in your opponent's hand by one. So annoying. You can play things like Scorpion, who's a two two who decreases the power of every card in your opponent's hand by one. Things like that, Electra, Green Goblin and Hobgoblin who are like variations on a theme. That stuff can drive me up a wall and when somebody has built a deck just to be like as gross as possible i'm like oh my god <laughs> which actually there's a whole mechanic that we haven't talked about and i know we've gone so long but just indulge me for one more moment please the game is called marvel snap because there's a there's a mechanic that's called snapping in oh this yes game. right i always forget that that's like what it's named after yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's so funny because i feel like it could be an afterthought but it's actually a really cool piece of the game the whole idea of snapping is you have this this cosmic cube that's floating above the match at all times that shows you how many cubes you will win or lose depending on if you win or lose the match usually it's one and at the end of the game it's two if nobody interacts with this cosmic cube and that advances your like ranked like it's yes. like your rank of play basically. exactly yeah so yeah. so making your way up the rank order which goes from one to 100 uh, is, is the max rank it's like infinity rank the thing about snapping is that you can tap that cosmic cube at any point in the game if you feel Feel like you have an advantage and you're probably going to win the match and that means that you're upping the ante of how many cubes you're willing to bet from your overall rank on this match and it can go up to eight so when you go and you tap that snap button it'll raise to four if your opponent also thinks that they're going to win it'll raise to eight which can completely it can like drop you down an entire rank in ranked play uh pretty immediately which is pretty hardcore that mechanic by itself is so fun and so horrifying at the same yeah. time because as soon as you're like oh i'm definitely gonna win you know when you hit like turn three and you hit the snap button and they immediately also hit the snap button you're like oh my god what do they have in their hand what are they building towards you need to start thinking about like what decks exist what have they played so it far it becomes poker it's like are they are they bluffing you know yes, like exactly it has that element and yeah. i have many times to be clear completely bluffed my way into my opponent retreating which is the other side of it which is like if the ante is raised too high you can just hit the retreat button and lose fewer cubes uh so like if it's up to eight and you hit retreat you won't lose all eight you'll just lose four which is helpful but sometimes you got to see it through
through. And those matches, especially when you get up in the ranks and you're playing against like people who are playing on meta decks, for example, and you're playing against them and you've both snapped and it's at eight, those matches are so tense and will take as long as a match can take because you're really thinking about every single move. And that's when you get closer to what Hearthstone was so good at. What I love about this game is like you're flying through matches constantly, but every once in a while you'll have one that will be very slow, very methodical, and you're like, I really need to play to the best of my ability if I want to get all eight of these cubes. Yeah, they all they all feel pretty complete. Like even though like you you'll burn through them, like it it never feels like it's too short, which is yeah. a nice feeling. They, it's really just you could tell it's made by people that really understand how card games work. Yeah. So I think Hearthstone in, in many ways was a streamlined version of Magic, where yeah. like in Magic, one of the first things you kind of have to learn is like it's kind of easy to to not really fully pay attention to how much mana cards cost because in Magic, uh, you essentially every turn you can put one mana down, mm-hmm. but mana also is in your hand. So there's a whole equation you have to do where like you have to make sure that there's enough mana in your deck that you will draw mana in your opening hand and have cards to play in your first couple turns. And I think what Hearthstone did, which was a brilliant idea, is like, let's just remove that and be like, you have one mana on turn one, you have two mana on turn two, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you can skip that step of understanding and just be like, okay, I need to now plan what I want to play on each turn. Yeah. And I think Marvel Snap has kind of broken that a bit where it's like, you still want to have like a nice range. Like you don't want to have all level five cards unless you have like a wild deck that's like betting on something being weird. Yeah. But like usually you want, at least my train of thought is like, you want to have like three ones, three two, like a nice spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe like one, six or one five i tend to like lower cost decks overall that mm. kind of buff each other i'll send you a, a a zoo deck that i think you'll like then yeah i played murlocs in hearthstone and goblins and rats in magic so i think i have a type um yeah, it sure seems but, like it but <laughs> but yeah i mean it, it's just awesome it's really impressive and and uh i don't want to say i was ready to write it off but i wasn't prepared to like it as much as i do yeah and uh it's definitely become a nice positive ritual what i'm hoping is that like it can become something that I just check in every now and then sort of like wild rift and not something that's like pulling me in Mm. quite as much. Uh, but I think that's just because I'm, I'm in my like early phase with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nature of the games being so, so short means that like while I'm boiling water, to make pasta or something, I'll play a match of Marvel Snap. I literally played while boiling water this morning, so you're <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah, uh, that's kind of where it's fit into my life. I, every once in a while, especially when a new season drops, um, and I want to make my way through that battle pass, I'll I'll you know kind of focus on the game and like make sure that I'm doing the season challenges and stuff. Right now, I'm doing one challenge: is you have to win games with forty total power or more at the yeah, end of it. I'm I'm like which halfway. Is so there. difficult. Yeah, yeah. That in particular is really hard. Uh, so that one I've been like. In my head against, but I'm almost done with the battle pass already. And the game's been out for like a week. Um, and that's, that's literally, <laughs> I haven't even been playing any more than I usually do. So I think, I think it's pretty generous on that front. I'm excited to play against friends that I would love to duel you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I never got into Yu Gi Oh! That was like. <laughs> In my card journey, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! came out when I was like in sixth grade and I was like, what is this like bullshit? I, I'm sorry to anyone who likes Yu-Gi-Oh! But I just, I found it to be like so like clearly derivative that I didn't even bite. I was like, I'm not even touching this mm. one. I saw a card that said Catapult Turtle on it and everything about that was like, that's all I needed. Like you, you took Bulbasaur and said, what if it had like an airplane carrier <laughs> instead of a flower? I loved the anime and I didn't play the game. I'm sure the anime is great. But uh, yeah, the, the actual yeah. card game I found to be very boring. I wonder um, how many Yu-Gi-Oh! video games there are. This is going to be 
Uh, maybe this maybe this is a redemption me. arc. I feel like I, I feel like I must have just angered a lot of people listening to our show. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if there's a Yu-Gi-Oh game out there that you actually like, please tell us. Because I'm yeah. I'm actually like excited now. I have to play I have an that. interesting like little thing floating around in my mind's eye of a PS1 game that I think people liked, but we'll be interested in that. Anyway, Marvel Snap is available for iOS, Android, and PC via Steam. Uh, it works great on iPad as well, which is where I play it a lot. One thing that I'll say is that the Steam version is clearly the iPad version and just has these like big borders on the sides. Like it's still vertical oh, in the middle. Yeah. has these big borders on the sides. And I'm really hoping that, you know, this is, again, the team that made Hearthstone. I'm hoping that over time we get some like more extravagant things where like the, the game will react to whatever screen you're playing on. So it's not always a vertical thing. I think it's like step one. But step two, I really miss being able to like mess around with the game board in Hearthstone. Yeah, and I yeah. want so badly something like that. And Marvel Snap to, to show up. And Runeterra like doubles down on the game yes. board. Like it, And those are the cosmetics that you unlock in, in Runeterra, yeah. which is also very cool. It's like yeah. you can unlock new game boards. Uh, and those are like the things you're paying for. Exactly. Cool. Well, why don't we take a break from Snap and uh, come back and talk about some non-card games for once. Yeah. What a long segment that was. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was fun. I had a good time. Snap. <laughs> Ew. See ya. Bye-bye. We are back. And... We have a game I'm very excited to talk about. We've been playing this for a while. I feel like usually with our show, like games for a regular episode are like kind of like, okay, I played the first like hour or two this week and maybe we'll revisit it later. Mm. This is one we've been playing for like at least two weeks. Yeah. And I've been kind of like holding off because we figured it would be a bigger segment. But I feel like it's also like the start of a journey. Yeah, Uh, very much. Like in every sense, um, we alluded to it last week. We've been playing Trails in the Sky on the Steam Deck. Yeah, I, I had mentioned, I think, last week or two weeks ago that I started playing it on, on the PSP uh, and I moved over to the Steam Deck version because I realized I, I was just kind of curious about some of the quality of life stuff um, and very immediately realized that that was more akin to how I wanted to play that game. Exactly. I, I think just the big thing, I'll just say it before we even get into what this game is. Uh, you can hold down one of the trigger buttons to speed up the game and uh, super good. <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> Hell yes. I feel like, you know, the the early journey, the 2019 season two journey for you was you wanted to get into JRPGs. Honestly, I think that even predates that season because I think like... Oh yeah. It's been a lifelong quest. It's been a lifelong quest that you achieved in strides i would say (laughs) and i think now we're at a point where like i think what i learned too is that like i came into this show with sort of the de facto title of being like the jrpg guy but i was very basic i feel like i only knew like (laughs) yeah i know final fantasy i didn't know dragon quest at all i knew i mean i'm not going to belittle myself but like what's exciting for me having entered the show with already a love for the genre is that there was so much i didn't know yeah you know um like obviously i knew a lot about final fantasy and the chrono game persona was like a that was like my recent new favorite and i've really enjoyed us finding a mutual love for dragon quest on this show that was like the big one i think for for both of us and now we're at a point this year where like now we've gotten into xenoblade via three we sort of got into tales a little bit with tales of arise although i feel like tales i really want to find like what is like the one that's for me because i feel like they're all kind of doing very different things mechanically yeah trails kind of came out of nowhere i didn't even know it existed until like this year uh and i've started it and i don't want to say it's like the one (laughs) but it's definitely my favorite new rpg we have started and discovered in a long time Mm. 
Like, I really love Xenoblade Chronicles 3, but, like, I don't know if that's going to inspire me to play 1 and 2. I kind of just want to see through 3. But, like, Trails, as you mentioned last week, is a long-running series that tells a long, continuous story. Or at the very least, they're all sort of, like, more directly related to each other. So there's the original Trails in the Sky trilogy. Um, And then I think there's... There's the, a there's a duology. It's called the Crossbell Duology, uh, which is what comes next, which which starts with uh, Trails from Zero and then Trails from Azure, which is just got announced for the Switch, I think, like a week ago, which is funny. Yeah. Um, so that's coming soon. And then there are three games. I think it's three in the Trails from Cold Steel franchise as well. Yeah. And all all of the Cold Steel games are on Switch because I yeah. remember I had like heard about Trails in the Sky and I looked at the Switch store and they only had Cold Steel. And I'm like. I don't know anything about this series, but starting with Trails of Cold Steel 4 sounds like the wrong move, you yeah, know? Like, right. it just seems like not the entry point. Yeah, I felt the same um, way. So I was really happy. Trails in the Sky has been on my backlog for a while, and then seeing that it was verified. It's not verified on the Steam store, and when you load it up on the Steam Deck, it asks you which version you want to play. If you do Direct X, it's like, out of the box, you're good. You don't have to change anything. Oh, interesting. I've been just doing the first option. It also works fine. For whatever reason, when I tried the normal one, it didn't open right away. Maybe it was just acting up. But yeah. either way, it works. Once you once yeah. you start it, it works. Uh, and on ProtonDB, it has platinum, I think. So yeah. I am like three hours into Trails in the Sky, and I really love it. So this is this is an RPG from 2004, which I think is an interesting era for for this genre because that is like sort of middle end of PS2, and I feel like the presentation of this game. You, you described it as like, what if Golden Sun got a remake? Yeah. Um, it has that look to it. Like you have sort of like a, a hand-drawn style, like anime style for the characters, like portraits and profiles. But the actual like models are like these little sort of Game Boy Advance Final Fantasy Tactics looking yeah. uh, character models. And the areas also feel sort of golden sunny for sure mm-hmm. um which is interesting because i feel like in 2004 obviously by today's standards we could say like, oh this is like another retro jrpg but i feel like this at the time was kind of going for a a more retro style because at this point you know we were final fantasy 10 had come out a few years prior which was like the first final fantasy to like have voice acting yeah and i feel like a lot of ps2 era games were trying to be as cinematic as possible so not to say that this was like Maybe maybe retro is the wrong word, but like this game was very comfortable not following that trend. And honestly, it plays so it feels so modern. Like, I think one of the first things I sent to you when I was playing this was like, I I feel like I'm playing one of the recent like Square B team games that are like homages to the past, Mm -hmm. like Octopath Traveler and uh triangle strategy mixed games in terms of narrative but those games are so well designed on a mechanical level and i found just the battles in trails to be so fun and so easy to understand and have such complexity kind of like marvel snap like (laughs) i i just loved like you see the turn order there's a thing i think we'll get more into details of like how it works mechanically but like something that just jumped out right away to me is like seeing the turn order be visible and also if you lose a battle you can just retry right there which is 
like I don't know if that was added for the Steam version or not, but that's like in the, that's in the original on the PSP as well. That's in the original. Yeah, I have a distinct recent memory of playing Persona Three Fez, which came out in two thousand six, two years after this game. That has like double boss battles with no save in between, and if you lose, <laughs> you have to do the whole thing over again. There's yeah. a lot of moments like that, and I enter this era of games expecting that. So I was, like, it sounds very small, but I think that just like it is microcosmic of how pleasant this game is to play because mm-hmm. the story so far is also like there are definitely hints of a larger you know the game is called trails in the sky i know it has its sights beyond what is immediately here yeah uh and there's a call to adventure that is bubbling but i i appreciate that the game is pretty patient with that like so i'm three hours in and i'm in what the game still calls the prologue and which is kind of insulting but you know whatever and uh basically like you play as estelle and her adopted brother joshua and like it begins with them as like very young kids like 11 ish uh and then it does a time jump five years later and they're teenagers and they're going to essentially like try out and and have the acceptance test to be what what is the name of the group again the bracers they want to be become bracers their dad is a bracer very uh pancreas scenario where your dad is just like the coolest most unstoppable dude with a mustache like (laughs) and what really stands out with this game too is how fun the dialogue is estelle is like immediately such a fun character i like that she's the lead for many reasons i mean one is just like still i feel like it's very rare to find a woman be the protagonist in jrpgs and i also think she's just like such a well-written character and is so like a immediately rootable but also extremely human like she has like archetypal nature to her like she's kind of bossy she teases people she's funny like she has sort of like a ghibli protagonist vibe to her yeah but she's also incredibly like she's not just one note the whole time like even in subtle ways you're seeing her feel insecure and feel not ready you know yeah i think i think having this this aspect to her where she has all of these qualities that you were just describing, you know, is kind of like uh, plucky and braggadocious and is like, you know, I'm I'm so powerful. I'm going to be a great bracer. This is awesome. But then also take a step back when she realizes that she's fucked up and realizing that sometimes those qualities aren't always in her favor, I think is really important to like yeah. have a character look in the mirror and realize that the things that you associate with them aren't always positives is is really human. Absolutely. And essentially the bracers are like, they just help people out. It's kind of like the Fighters Guild in Oblivion. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, you know, it's just like a group of people that do good. It's like organized um, vigilanteism in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it seems like Joshua's origins are kind of mysterious. Like, it seems like he might be from like an enemy nation or something. Yeah. But essentially, like in the very beginning, uh, Estelle's father brings him to their house and is like, we're going to take care of this kid from now on. I found this baby. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're raising him. Yeah. Yeah. But Joshua's personality he's like very like calm very kind they have a nice repartee where they have like very different energies but they complement each other well yeah and um seeing them both kind of battle their own feelings of self-worth in this like trial exam it's familiar stuff but it's done in a way that immediately pulls you into the characters i feel like with a weaker script this would feel like the thing you have to push past but in this game it felt like i I relished every moment of it because i knew that it was building up to something and the battles just rock i mean this is (laughs) this is another turn-based game that is dealing with placement in a way that's almost tactics-esque 
also kind of like Eichenfell, where there's like mm. a grid and you sort of have an isometric view of the battlefield and you can see kind of like Fire Emblem what the range of movement your character has. So like to attack the enemy, you actually have to move to be in range you also have like every character has their own crafts which are like character centric abilities so estelle's starting abilities are like a morale support where she can yell like come on and everyone gets stronger yeah or she can taunt the enemy so she can like pull focus whereas joshua has very like assassiny moves where he can like speed himself up yeah and he can also uh you know do like backstabs and everything so that's fun you also have arts which <laughs> There's a whole tutorial about like equipping arts and the elements of arts and you have these slots for arts and Estelle can use any type of orb, but Joshua from the beginning can only use time magic. And the whole time I'm like, they're they're trying so hard not to say materia. Yeah. Like I can I can feel I almost the materia unironically in that in that section <laughs> but it really is materia and honestly it's a really clever interpretation of materia i like that something for those who don't know what materia is in final fantasy 7 the man, i'm just citing every game i love in this section this is a blast. <laughs> i think it speaks to why trails is so good yeah i mean if it's calling all these games to focus like why not yeah in final fantasy 7 uh it was a major departure from traditional final fantasy style <laughs> where like in previous Final Fantasy I'm games, just waiting for it to like break outside of just video games. You're yeah. going to be like, it reminds me so much of pizza <laughs> and Radiohead. This game is just like a day off, basically, where it's like, this is just like, I mean, we have we have unironically done Radiohead comparisons many, many a time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, in Final Fantasy VII, uh, <laughs> Materia essentially allows you to equip any character with like spells and abilities. And essentially Final Fantasy VII was moving away from like a system where every character is a set class. It kind of allowed you to customize and give them abilities that like anybody can use anything. But some characters have a knack for magic that others don't. But like, yeah, characters were kind of a blank canvas, which was a cool idea. I do kind of like characters having a bit more of a defined role. And I think what I am enjoying about trails so far is that like Estelle is the you can give her whatever material you want. But Joshua, at least in the beginning, is like, I can only use this. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice way to give the player customization options, but like also have the characters have their own sense of identity in battle. That's also coupled with the crafts and their own like limit break abilities where they can, you know, do yeah. a big cinematic attack but i just i really like the idea of movement and having to think strategically about okay like what is the turn order when and where should i use this ability for a lot of the magic attacks which you get from the orbs they will happen a turn later so yeah. you have to be cognizant of that and also there are just in the turn order there are bonuses for random turns so there might be a turn where it's like the enemy or the player heals 10 health it, it is weirdly kind of like the locations in marvel snap <laughs> but specifically for turn order so like yeah. with joshua because you can speed up and and manipulate time you can use him to like get the benefits of those turn bonuses yeah in place of the enemy so there's a lot going on but it doesn't feel overwhelming because the game kind of like gives you enough options that combat feels fun immediately like it's it's just fun to move Estelle and hit someone with a big staff but it's also fun to like think strategically and and do all this and battles are usually short enough that that you know I never avoid them mm -hmm. and that's something that like in a lot of JRPGs I, I eventually come to resent combat yeah and in trails so far I seek it out because one it's fun and two the battle theme is sick it's one of my favorite battle themes which is saying a lot there are a lot of good battle themes out there 
the music in this game is yeah. unbelievable. unbelievable. It's, it's, it's yeah. by a team called Falcom, and people in the Discord have called this out, but a lot of the people on staff at Falcom are musicians. Like, even the people that are doing awesome. other roles outside of music are musicians, and they're all contributing to this game. So the music is, like, unreal the yeah, whole time. It's, it's incredible. And the mood of the battle theme is very much like, hey, welcome. You know, it's not, yeah. like, intimidating. It's like, we know you're going to have fun with this. Uh, I think the ter- the song is called Sophisticated Battle, which I also love. <laughs> so I'm still very early on. You know, I think that while I can say right now I'd love to do at least the original trilogy, that's three 40-hour games, yeah. which is the length of one Persona game. But, you know, <laughs> it is still a lot of time. Right. But I'm definitely pulled into this one, and I, I will at least see this one through. And there, I again, for a series that I only discovered recently, there are a lot of really passionate fans for this series. Yeah. This is like when we announced briefly that we were considering playing this with the show, multiple people reached out to us being like, do it. Or like, here is like my recommendation of like order of games or, you know, whatever. And uh, it seems like playing the original trilogy first is the move. So, I mean, you know, stay tuned. If, if it's something that we really continue to be this enthusiastic for, I could see it being a bonus one day. Yeah. Um, I would love to, again, at least do this trilogy, at least do this game, see how I feel, go from there. <laughs> And uh, what's nice is that it seems like we're getting more and more of these games on Switch as well. Yeah, it's weird that they're doing it backwards, which I think is very frustrating because all the all the Cold Steel games, which are the latest ones, are all available on Switch. And then they just released Trails from Zero a couple weeks ago, which is the beginning of the Crossbell duology. Crossbell (laughs) is the city that that game takes place in. They're releasing Trails from Azure, which is the follow up to Trails from Zero, which would imply hypothetically that the Trails in the Sky trilogy is going to come to Switch eventually. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But why they're doing this series that is meant to be played in order backwards is beyond me. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Uh, It's very confusing. So I'll I'll, I'll say this much um, because I I played like you about three hours of this game and I played about three hours of Trails from Zero as well. I loved what I played of Trails from Zero. And if the series is always on this level in terms of what I've experienced in both of these games, I really do think I I could see myself playing through all of them very slowly uh, because Trails from Zero, even even in its starting hours, I think you're going to be obsessed with the characters in the party the party is so fun because it's all these like essentially kids who volunteer to be cops and realize like that's maybe a bad idea yeah um especially in a world where they're pitted against the bracers who still exist and are this like vigilante group that the public loves and they hate the police is really fascinating to see that that uh that juxtaposition between those two groups so jumping back and playing trails in the sky and seeing kind of not the origins of the bracer group but like seeing at least you know people growing up aspiring to be bracers is really fascinating in contrast to what's happening at the beginning of trails from zero where these kids are aspiring to be police officers yeah whereas they probably could have joined the bracers and been like famous and wealthy and whatever because that group is so well loved uh they're doing this thing that's like generally shittier going and playing trails in the sky and seeing kind of these two kids growing up and being like i really want to be a bracer is really fun really interesting and and i can't wait to see how that evolves especially once we start leaving the like starting city and make our way to different places around the continent. I'm really curious to see what the bracers are like in other places. Um, and if the game is, as I believe it will be, is curious about 
those kinds of power structures and those kinds of systems that we have in society and really holding a mirror up to them and like questioning their place and and their relevance. There's definitely I feel like they're setting up questioning that even in in the early hours of of Trails in the Sky. Totally. Because like your dad is a bracer and like as much as there's sort of this wide eyed uh, admiration and appreciation for this group, the dad is like kind of secretive about like what he has to do and like what he's assigned to do. And yeah, the first scene is he just brings home a baby and is like we're right. raising this baby <laughs> so immediately you're like are the bracers good like holy yeah. good and then there's a moment later on where he's like you know he gets a call that he has to like go away again and it's implied through dialogue that like estelle is often mad at him for like just yeah. like leaving and uh you know i i wonder if there's an undercurrent of like the reason estelle and joshua want to become bracers is to be closer to their father mm-hmm. and not even for the sake of like i think estelle is like adventurous and like a courageous enough person that she would want to do the things that are advertised but i also think there's the sense of like well maybe on an unconscious level of we're bracers like we can go wherever he has to go all the time mm-hmm. and what horrifying things await there <laughs> most likely yeah the game is extremely relaxing it's worth mentioning like the vibe yeah. is very chill but there are these kind of darker undercurrents that i'm really curious about um and and i have just based on what I've experienced in both of these games so far, I have a lot of faith in the writing and the narrative to ask interesting questions and make good on asking those questions, even if they are heavier. Yeah, I think it's relaxing, too, because the structure seems to be almost like Monster Hunter-y. Like if Monster Hunter had a larger story in the mm-hmm. sense that like you are doing missions for this group. Yeah. And again, I'm early on, so this could be wrong, but it seems that there's a heavier sort of mission based gameplay focus for a game like this, it's usually more about point A to point B story plays out. It seems like it's kind of cut in half between like do bracer jobs and then more story will happen kind of thing. Yeah, that's Trails in the Sky. It's available on PC and the PlayStation Portable currently <laughs> and hopefully more things soon. Hopefully um, Switch because um, yeah. I, I really like playing it handheld. It ha- again, it has that Game Boy Advance aesthetic. It has the Game Boy Advance 2 aesthetic yes. that we've now said more than once. Yeah. If this trilogy does make its way to the Switch, I will probably play 2 and 3 on the Switch uh, eventually because mm. um, I, I like it on the Steam Deck a lot. But again, having it on the Switch, I think would be really nice. Yeah, having the option for both. Although I guess now that specifically having the whole talk. series on the Switch, I think would be really nice. Like just knowing yeah. that you could play through this entire great franchise all at once. It's very much akin to what you and I always talk about about game preservation and just like yeah, porting things forward and allowing people to revisit these things. Because without without those efforts, we wouldn't even know that the Trails series existed. Um, and right, and seeing these constant hits of like Trails from Zero finally got localized and is coming out in the states and is coming to the Switch. Very cool. Trails from Azure, same thing was the impetus for us checking out the whole franchise in the first place. So um, seeing that happen, I think going forward would be really nice. Absolutely. So that's that's the early beats of Trails in the Sky. I'm sure we'll return to it eventually. Yeah. Uh, but I do think my de- my desire to jump back into Trails from Zero is going to be kind of a driving force for me with Trails in the Sky because I, I was in love with the opening hours of that game. So yeah, the sentiment seems to be that like, it just gets better, basically. Yeah. But like anything, you need those early beats to get there. And honestly, if if like this is the game you have to like power through, I'm I'm enjoying it greatly. So I'm sure I'll enjoy the later ones even more. Yeah, I will say uh, I mentioned this last week, but the the combat and the gameplay is like largely exactly the same between oh, cool. at least Trails in the Sky and Trails from Zero. So all of those games in between, it seems like it's more it's not even iterative. It's just kind of like this is what we're doing. The thing about Trails from Zero, and I, I don't know if this is the case in, in the sky yet, uh, but 
maybe, is that a lot of the positioning elements in Trails from Zero's combat also have area of effect as well. Oh, interesting. So you yeah. can hit multiple enemies at once, um, and it feels very Chrono Trigger. It feels honestly like the thing that I've always talked about wanting from Chrono Trigger, which is more like, agency over placement. Yeah, yeah and, and more like visual identification of how many things I'm going to be hitting, et cetera, et cetera. Trails from Zero like nails that. Uh, so I, I hope to see that in like Trails in the Sky 2 or whatever. Yeah. Second chapter. Sorry. And then what's the third one called? I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out when we get there. One day soon. Watch the skies. Watch the skies. Watch cool. this space, dear listener. <laughs> Why don't we take a small break and then move into the last section of the episode? Sounds good. See you then. Bye. are back it's the final spooky season of 2022 (laughs) i feel like it just started it's already over i sadly wasn't able to do my full playlist but that just means there's plenty to look forward to next year Um, yeah but i am very excited to bring a game to this final section uh just for those who have been following the streams i wasn't able to stream last week like planned but i should be able to on the 31st do the shadows of rose uh stream very excited to do that Mm. on halloween evening anyway the final game of spooky season for 2022 one of the final games one of the final i'm sorry how dare you erase me that was a bit egocentric i'm sorry i just like superlatives <laughs> one of the final games is eve which was a remake of a 2012 rpg maker psychological horror game that seems to be largely credited as a game that like i feel like there are a lot of indie rpg maker horror games that don't necessarily use like rpg mechanics yumi nikki comes to mind although yumi nikki predates eve uh mm-hmm. and they kind of reminded me of each other, which is kind of why I had an interest in Eve, because those who don't know, Yumi Nikki was an indie game where very visually inspired by Earthbound, you played as a girl who refused to leave her house. And the only way to progress in the game was to go to sleep. And then you woke up in a weird dream world. And the whole game is largely exploring her dreams. I think I brought it to the show very early on. Mm. Um, But that's a game that stuck with me. And I I recommend it to a lot of people because there's not... I I think there are few horror games that are confident enough in just the imagery and mood that the entire game is just like wandering. Like there is a goal of of unlocking certain things, but the joy and terror of that game (laughs) is just the discovery and like seeing images that like you may not have the words to describe but are just like that is so weird and actually dreamlike um so i saw that there was a trailer for eve at one of the uh switch directs one of the nintendo directs and they announced that the remake was coming to switch in spring of 2023 just in time for halloween just in time for halloween (laughs) snow is melting sun shining um Time to go to the museum. So Ebe is already on Steam, though. The remake, which came mm. out this year. And it just looked really cool, and it seemed like a similar approach to Yumi Nikki, but in a museum. Yeah. Um. So I didn't really know anything about it, but I'm like, I just, I, I read enough that it was like a cult hit, and people seem to really admire it. So I'm like, this sounds fantastic. I'm all in. Yeah. And uh, I started it this morning, um, and I'm about an hour in. Apparently, it's like a three, four hour game, cool. uh, and it rules. The hype is real. I love it. Mm. It is surprisingly funny, which I didn't expect. Okay, but like, 
I think I've talked about this a lot, especially with our friend Dom Nero, who uh, is host of Eye of the Duck podcast. He is a naturally very funny guy, but he also has this really strong interest in horror. And you mm. see that a lot, too. Like Jordan Peele is a great example of a comedian who is also very gifted at horror. And there's there's an intersection there where I think both horror and comedy are asking a physical response from the audience in a way that is based yeah. on setup. You yeah, know? The re- yeah, reliant on understanding other people's emotions. Absolutely, exactly, exactly. And and sometimes horror can be funny, and sometimes you know, vice versa. I mean, you know, there are episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm that make me squirm more than some horror movies, mm-hmm. uh, and there are some horror movies that make me laugh more than some comedies. So uh, what I say by funny is like. It is a very creepy game. It's a disturbing game. You play as Eve, who's this little girl who's visiting a museum with her family. And the game opens and you essentially just wander the museum for a Mm. bit. So it reminds me a lot of actually... I'm on a roll today. Reminds me a lot of Dragon Quest V, where uh, early on in that game, you're Reminds little... me of the first time I fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does remind me, and I, you'll see why. It reminds me of the beginning of Dragon Quest V when you're a little kid. The first thing you do in that game is just wander a ship oh, while yeah. your dad is busy. And because you're a kid, you don't have a running bit in the childhood section of that game. Is like you'll check out a... a shelf of books and it'll say like this looks interesting but you don't know how to read because you're a kid mm-hmm. and you put the book back stuff yeah. like that with Eve, you're checking out all this artwork and there because you're a younger person there are actually words that you don't understand yet so like they're on the painting it will be like from the work of question mark question mark question mark you know and like you can read because you're nine but you may not know like who the artist is or like right. some more complicated words so you're kind of just like let loose and you explore and uh when you go to the roof or not the roof, but the top floor, you see this really big, disturbing painting of like what looks like another world with the person that kind of looks like Eve or her mother. They have similar like hair and eyes and she's like stuck in this world. So of course, when you check that out, suddenly the lights blink and you're in a new place. But Mm. before then, it kind of lets you just like talk to all the people who are looking at the art and like it it does have a little bit of that mother or undertale humor to it where like or even some like Pokemon NPCs where they just sort of say weird things or like Yeah. It's fun to see I like shorts. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to see like how especially in a museum when like you have this range of like you know, a, an older couple who are just like very attentive and like really like staring and dedicating themselves to a piece. You have like a younger guy who's like, can I try eating this? This looks kind of edible. Like, is it cool? <laughs> like there's this like tree with a bunch of strands on it and everyone looking at it is like, can I take one of these? Uh, and then, you know, there's this stuff like that that I thought was really funny and like pulled me in right away. Um, and then, of course, like you see this big painting, the lights go on and off. You go out downstairs. No one's there anymore. And sometimes when you check paintings, weird things happen. So like there's a painting of a pear and you walk past it and like a, a apple falls and just splashes on the floor. Mm. When you check the windows, uh, there's like banging on it or like blood will come down. It's like, you know, typical creepy stuff. But some of the execution does feel a little slapstick. Um, and the game does a good job balancing tone where like there's some stuff that's like genuinely terrifying. And then there's stuff that just makes me like nervously laugh. Like, so essentially, like once you're done exploring the museum, there is a painting of like an angler fish. And there's like words drawn in paint around like follow me, like I'll take you to a new place and mm-hmm. you go there and it's sort of like an Alice in Wonderland scenario where you're in this new place. But there's a hallway in one of the areas of just 
paintings of a guillotine that is slowly going up so it's like the first one is the guillotine like done like as you're making your way down the hallway yes there are multiple painting okay i see yeah so it's like almost like frames of an animation yes exactly and of course when you get to the end of the hallway it's fully up and then a real guillotine falls from the ceiling and kills you and then it goes to the game over screen which the game over screen has a similar like taunting nature to the castlevania one we talked about we're like Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful night let's go out for fun like the yeah. music is just like there are so many moments where like i'll die in a way like that and i just start like i like facepalm I'm like of course like why did i think nothing was gonna happen <laughs> you know yeah um and uh there's actually so while yumi nikki is like a very solitary experience Eve actually very quickly you meet another character named gary who joins your party um mm fairly early on like you find someone who's like in pain on the floor and what's interesting is that your health is signified by a red rose so like you'll find vases around where like, if you put the rose in the water you'll reheal yeah uh, you'll replenish your health um and eventually you find a blue rose like what's this for and you put it in the water and then all of a sudden uh gary is like up on his feet again and he's like a teenage person and uh once you have him in your party he follows you around and he actually can teach you new words because he's a little older. So he's like, you know, <laughs> I know art pretty well. He's like kind of arrogant. He's like, if you yeah. need help reading a word, but like, you know, he also will like try to move things and like, there's a little bit more commentary from him. So it yeah. quickly pivots from feeling like, okay, I'm in this like really, and I'm sure like it's going to get scarier, but it's more creepy than like haunting. And I think it's funny on purpose. I think there's definitely like some humor that's meant to be like either both or just like make you kind of nervously laugh like mm. there's a moment where there's a painting of a woman and she like bursts out of the frame and starts crawling after you yeah this is genuinely terrifying and then you get into a room where there's just a bunch of bookshelves and you hear banging on the door behind you and one of the books is like demons and paintings follow you till the end of the earth thankfully they can't open doors and like you read that as you just hear like <laughs> pounding on the door so like that stuff like that feels on purpose yeah. um and i don't think it's setting out to be like a Shaun of the dead comedy but i think that it's having fun in the moments that are blurred you know it's like this is definitely like supposed to be disturbing and creepy and i died as a player but i can also see the silliness of it and appreciate Mm -hmm. it and it does in that way feel like so many moments are open to your interpretation of the moment like being in a museum yeah or like you know you have you have these moments of just pure observation and you know there's a lot of creepy things again it's it's a disturbing game like there's a mouth on a wall that asks for food and then when you feed it it opens up and you have to walk inside yeah and then like suddenly you're somewhere else so like i don't think that my initial assumption that it was like yumi nikki was similar and that is it is a game that is about exploring a place but it's a very different tone and i think it's actually more inviting like yumi nikki is incredibly disturbing right this game so far is like there's definitely a lot of disturbing imagery but it's a little bit like more haunted house-esque than like truly surreal yeah that's definitely what it sounds like it sounds like they're really trying to strike a balance there where it's not just like trying to scare you at all times which i think is really helpful yeah i'm very interested in checking this out you've you've sold me on this one it's a lot of fun there's also some light puzzles as well so like most of the rooms are like and in that way again it reminds me i mentioned like mother and undertale and like in the beginning of undertale in the ruins there's like a lot of puzzles and like weird dialogue with weird characters it feels like that but a scarier version that's great basically 
Yeah. yeah. It sounds really cool. Uh, it's awesome. I would recommend it. I don't really know what's different from the original game. I, I, I did look up to some footage of it and they definitely have like polished up the art a little bit and like, but I don't know if it's, if it's fundamentally like a different game at all, mm. but it seems like people seem to enjoy this remake who are fans of the original. So I imagine it's, it's uh well done. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's Eeb, uh, I-B. Is, IB, is how you yes. spell that yeah uh, but it's also in the show notes if you want to check that out it sounds really good you're playing it on the steam deck as you mentioned right yes yeah it plays great on the steam deck um cool. and it's coming to switch <laughs> next spring <laughs> yeah uh cool that sounds great let me i'll talk about a steam deck game i've been playing as well Please for a couple of weeks actually at this point i've been playing this game a little bit kind of like the trails games uh this is one that i've been kind of simmering with for a while i just made a video like right before we started recording this that should be on our youtube by the time this comes out uh but i'm playing a game called dome keeper which is an indie game uh, by a small team that goes by Bip and Bits uh, and published by Raw Fury. But it's a game I've been playing on the Steam Deck that I really hope comes to Switch one day because it would be so good on Switch. But I think from the offset, I don't know if people would consider this a spooky season game, but I very much do because I, I'm very frequently unsettled while I'm playing this game. Mm, yeah. um, so it's a roguelike, which is seems interesting to even say that a roguelike could be considered for a spooky season game because it's all about like knowing all the permutations of what can happen. But the game's setup involves you just seeing this kind of spacecraft falling from the sky and smashing into the ground and you're immediately inside of that smashed spacecraft which is a small dome on top of a very clearly hostile alien world uh, and you're flying around with a jetpack in your little spacesuit. And the thing that you need to do specifically is you need to drill down into the earth below you. And this is kind of where the, the roguelike stuff comes in. What's below you, like Minecraft, is being generated randomly. So it's, it's a 2D game. It's not like Minecraft in that it's 3D. It's a 2D game. But you're drilling through the earth trying to find resources that you can use to buy upgrades for your dome to allow you to do different things. So one of the earliest ones, for example, is seeing how much health your dome has. Uh, and why would you need health for your dome? You you may be asking and that's because there's a hidden timer that's going down constantly in the background while you're under the earth mining where every once in a while waves of hostile enemies aliens who i think are the indigenous life of the planet will come and attack your dome and just start smashing against it like zombies um, and you have in the beginning of the game, at least the first time you play it, you just have this laser that's kind of like um, kind of like missile command, like the old like yeah. NES Atari 2600 missile command. You could just move it very slowly over the dome left and right to try and shoot these enemies that are running up to your dome to smash it uh, and, and break their way in and kill you. So what you need to be doing is managing this time that you're down below the earth mining, hoping to God that you find resources and how you're spending them to upgrade your dome to make either you know the laser faster when it's moving left and right over your dome or make it more powerful or for example upgrading your jetpack so you fly around faster so you're not spending as much time under the earth or make your drill more powerful so you can drill faster into the earth things like that so the layout of what's happening below your dome will change every run that you're playing which is you know kind of roguelikey in itself there's another element as well where every once in a while you'll find a microchip and that microchip will uh when you bring it up into your dome will unlock a new skill tree for your dome as well for the upgrades that you can possibly be investing stuff in and that will also be randomly generated so one of them that i found which is very silly is a dinosaur with a drill at the end of its nose that will just automatically when you put him down in in the earth will just start drilling and doing whatever he wants and he'll just like you know <laughs> 
kind of walk around and, and drill into the earth and sometimes find resources for you, which can be helpful. But also he falls asleep a lot and you need to go wake him up when he falls asleep. So uh, not super helpful all the time. But then there are really helpful ones like a teleporter, for example, that you can take and drop further into the mine that you're building. And you can immediately teleport back and forth between the dome and this teleporter. But it takes a really long time. It takes like five seconds to teleport back and forth between this space, which is very valuable time when there's this timer constantly counting down to the next alien attack. That having been said, the other upgrade trees that exist, some of them are just unlocking more UI for your for your screen. So like seeing how much health the dome has, visualizing the timer of how long it's going to take for aliens to show up. Things like that are all things that you can unlock in the game. So it's really about like prioritizing. And I imagine this will change depending on how good you are at the game and how much of it you've played, like most roguelikes, where you'll start to prioritize like Maybe I don't need to see how long it's going to take for the aliens to come down because I kind of know from audio cues and visual cues what's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, So I don't literally need it on my screen at all times. Or maybe, you know, because you can see cracks forming in the dome. Maybe I don't need to be investing resources and seeing how much health the dome has because I know when it's filled with cracks that it's probably halfway done (laughs) to you know, smashing into a billion pieces, things like that, which I think are really interesting. The reason I consider this a spooky season game is a, I just find the the enemy design to be really disconcerting. They're all like really kind of horrifying aliens. One of them is just like literally this kind of like shadow monster who just like smashes on the glass, but there are other ones that fly through the air and there's like a blimp sized one with like a billion eyes that oh, just wow. yeah. like will really fuck you up. There's like small swarms of little tiny things with a bunch of glowing eyes that will all run at you that you, you need to like try and hit with this very slow laser as they're like sprinting towards you. That by itself, I think is really interesting. There's this other element though, that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and I mentioned this a lot in the video that I made, but I started to wonder the more I played this game, if I was the bad guy here. Yeah. I think there's this really interesting kind of psychological element of like, well, because I'm playing as this character and these things look evil, that must mean that I'm the good guy. But I mean, at the end of the day, you sure are this like technologically advanced, advanced being dropping down into this planet and just deciding to colonize it and strip it of its resources. And of course, the indigenous life would be against that. Of course, they would be coming for you and trying to wipe you out in response. So I'm curious to see if you actually get further into the game, if they start to acknowledge that or not. But I also think it's kind of laid into the gameplay itself as well, because there is this risk reward of how much time are you spending down in the mine and how much time are you spending up in the dome, uh, you know, taking care of the stuff that's happening up there versus trying to mine for resources. There's a real give and take. There's a real risk of reward there where sometimes the thing that will do you in when playing Domekeeper is just your own greed being like, I'm going to grab, you know, six of these uh, square golden cubes and bring them up into the dome. Sometimes because you've grabbed onto so much stuff and your jetpack is only so powerful, you'll be so slow that you'll, you know, make it up to the dome by the time the, the enemy swarm has already started. And by that point, it's too late and you're dunked. So sometimes your own greed can be your downfall. And that to me feels like it goes hand in hand with this possibility that like yeah, maybe I'm right. the, maybe I'm the villain here. I think it's a really, really, really interesting game. It's it's very quickly become one of the more interesting games that I played this year and plays great on the Steam Deck. And I really hope it comes to other platforms eventually because I would love to see other people playing this game. Yeah, it sounds awesome. It's really cool. I really like I just Googled it. I, I like the sort of purple sky and uh, the art is awesome. The aesthetic. Yeah, it's really cool. It does have a little bit of like uh, a third 
thirties, forties, like B movie yeah. sci-fi energy, yeah, absolutely. Which, which I think is very cool. But the pixel art is, is really, really well rendered. It's a great game. And I, I think one thing that maybe, uh, some people might not enjoy, but I kind of enjoy is the runs do take a while. Like they, this isn't like a Marvel snap, for example, but this isn't like, you know, other <laughs> roguelikes where you'll jump in and be like, yeah, this is going to be like five or 10 minutes and it fits in great in between all these other things. Kind of like vampire survivors, which is another great steam deck roguelike. That's like, yeah. you always know a game can only be 30 minutes long and you probably won't even hit that. Dome keeper is a little bit more open-ended where like, sometimes you'll just get really lucky in the resources that you find and you'll be able to upgrade your shit very quickly and you'll do very well. Um, and a run will take a long time. Sometimes you get absolutely ruined so quickly. Uh, and there really is no in between Like it really is just going to be like, this run is over faster than you think, or, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing so well. <laughs> One of the cool things that I really like about it as well is that when you're done with a run, the microchips that you found that have unlocked these other skill trees, you get to carry one of them into your next run as well, which I guess makes it more of a roguelite than a roguelike. But uh, stay tuned for our <laughs> Metroidvania episode to hear more about that delineation. Oh, man. Um, yeah. But anyway, I do really appreciate that. It reminds me a little bit of Into the Breach where you can like take yeah. one of your pilots back into the next run um, as you upgrade them. Domekeeper has a similar thing that I think is very cool. It's a great game. I, I really, really, really love it. Did that come out this year? Yeah, it came out uh, last month. Hell yeah. I think exactly one month ago as of this recording. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is, I guess, the finale of Spooky Season. But like you just alluded to, we do have our bonus for this month coming out on the 31st is the plan. So hopefully on Halloween, which is Castlevania, Symphony of the Night and Super Metroid. We just recorded that yesterday. I'll say it. I think it's great. I think it's like one of our best bonuses. We've uh-huh. done. Yeah, it was uh, fun. It was a fun not report. to hype it up too much, but I, I had a great time. It was yeah. it was a very, very fun discussion because we talked a lot about the sort of genre itself and also like dissecting like what it means to be a genre at all. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I feel like I walked away from that conversation learning more about my own understanding of it. Yeah, uh, totally. Same. Yeah, I, it was really I, I had already played Super Metroid to completion before we had uh, started that endeavor, but I had never played that much of any Castlevania game. Uh, so that was very interesting by myself to finally force my way into Castlevania and be like, do I really like this? And uh, why or why not? Was was very interesting. Exactly. So that will be the final uh, finale of October. And uh, also, hopefully, you'll be streaming the Shadows of Rose on Halloween night. Yeah, so. I'm really excited about that. Oh, yeah. Quick shout out. There were two events that happened last. One of them, which was fucked up. Uh, very classic into the <laughs> thing where we released an episode that was like just joking about Silent Hill. And then, of course, Konami came out of hibernation. <laughs> They haven't made a game yeah. in like eight years and suddenly we're like, we're revealing like six Silent Hill things all simultaneously the same day yeah. that we released that episode, which is very funny. There's some stuff that seems interesting in there and some stuff I'm not as interested in, but I'm I'm curious just in general about Konami being like, no, Silent Hill is a thing we care about and we're going to keep making video games. Yeah, there are skateboards. You can get a pyramid head skateboard. You can get a pyramid head skateboard. You can get a hat. You, you can get a hat. I, uh, <laughs> I'm really curious about the Silent Hill 2 remake. I feel like it's a little bit of a bummer for me that that game is like impossible to get legally and we're getting a remake instead of like access to the original but at the same time i'm happy that it's going to be reintroduced to a lot of new people yeah and and hopefully be more accessible so like i'm definitely 
curious about what it turns out to be. I will say though, and this is this is the big thing about Silent Hill specifically, and I've tweeted this already, but I'll say it again on the air, is that like Silent Hill I do think really benefits from the grunginess of the PS1 and the PS2 yeah. in a way that when you clean it up, I don't think it actually is the same series anymore. I think it's such a clear indication that there are so many independent teams making horror games that look like PS1 games. In that style. Yeah, exactly. Is that that kind of is a little bit an inherent part of why that game is so scary. But Silent Hill 2 is an awesome experience, and I'm sure, unless they like really mess it up, I'm sure <laughs> it's going to at least be a good retelling of it uh in yeah some way. i don't want to so. pile on here because it, it it seems like it's maybe not coming from a great place but uh i do know that there are a lot of people who are like not stoked about the development team that's working on that game specifically. oh interesting it's by the team that made the medium which was like that first oh yeah series s and x game that you and i played like very little of i don't think we even brought it to the show but I do remember thinking while playing that game that like I appreciated a lot of what was going on in the medium, but I didn't really love the execution. And I'm wondering if you take the talent that that team has, which is creating like really visceral environments and tension, but needing to just mash that in with a story that is already written and is already beloved might actually be the key to success there. Yeah, we'll see. I really I mean, that game is so beloved that if it's not good people are going to flip out <laughs> and yeah. like imagine not making a game for 10 years and then ruining your beloved one uh, <laughs> but simultaneously but we'll they happens. announced you know another game that's going to have like a bunch of weird like audience interaction which is bizarre that like plays out in real time or something yeah. they announced another game from like another beloved indie team um, that is really known for making very high quality little puzzle box environments oh um, hell yeah that I'm really stoked about uh, I think that one's called Townfall that trailer was sick but i do think actually sorry to continue this episode but uh i do think it's really worth bringing up that this silent hill 2 remake is juxtaposed directly against the resident evil event that happened the day after yeah where they showed off more of resident evil 4 which Capcom is, snaps konami here yes exactly like, we got our own event sorry the resident evil 4 remake first of all looks incredible i think it just looks amazing i loved the trailer that they showed i love the game they showed like some extended gameplay the changes that they've made to the way that game opens i think benefit it in some ways it just looks really good and speaks again to a thing that you and i talk about a lot in terms of game preservation where like the thing about silent hill 2 is that they're not you know they made those bad re-releases that happened yeah. a long time ago the original is not available on anything legally anymore they're only allowing you the option of playing this remake and if it's good or bad is you know kind of indifferent to the idea of giving people what they want exactly the thing about capcom and resident evil 4 specifically is that like resident evil 4 has been ported to everything under the yeah. sun they are trying to maintain that original everywhere and also creating this remake and giving you the option of which one you'd rather interact with but more specifically letting you interact with both and compare and contrast them i think that's the way to do it absolutely and capcom's pretty good about that like honestly of, of all the like companies we talk about like they port like ghost trick is ported yeah you know like even their more obscure stuff and honestly i always say this like okami feels like it should be the game that's 300 at the retro store but yeah. they've also ported that forward and also honestly a lot of these games have found an audience later you know i think right. like the relevance of dragon's dogma was amplified by that being on the switch you know, and not like, Absolutely. you know, that game came out in 2012. It was buried by Dark Souls, which was buried by Skyrim. <laughs> you know, it was the it was the Waluigi of big uh, yeah. fantasy games at the time. Uh, so I think like it allows 
much like film and TV can sometimes find an audience later, I do think, I mean, Among Us is probably the biggest example of that, where like that game, more recent, obviously, but it found its success a few years after release. And I do think that like, what's funny too, is like, I, I see so much discussion about Morrowind online and like often it's from people that are younger than I am. And it's like, yeah, that rules, you know, the fact that like someone and I, I had that interest, too. Like when I was in my early 20s, like I wanted to learn more about the NES yeah. and all that. Like people who like games, you know, there's obviously the people who like buy one game a year and they'll buy the new thing. And that's what they want to engage with. And that's totally fine. It's not a bad thing. Right. You know, but I think that for people who are passionate about games, there's a history here. And those people are often the ones that take on the work to preserve this stuff through emulators or whatever yeah so thankfully i'm glad that capcom sees the value of their of their library and uh you know also has a million street fighter and mega man collections as well but that's another conversation (laughs) uh yeah yeah, i i'm really glad that with resident evil 4 especially a game that's as beloved as that i mean resident evil 4 and silent hill 2 are like huge landmark hard that's what i mean it's so it's so clear to juxtapose the two of them and how each company is handling each game uh and and to walk away from that being like yeah capcom has it right and konami extremely does not yeah uh but i'm really excited for that remake and also i'm really excited for just all the bonus stuff in village um yeah it's gonna be so cool i am i honestly for the konami stuff i'm more interested in the new games than even the remake to be yeah, honest me too in a big way i mean I, I obviously don't really have the history of silent hill but some of the stuff that they announced honestly seemed fascinating like yeah. I really just out of pure curiosity i, I, I want to check it out i do have now an even stronger pull for us to do a silent hill trilogy bonus though i'm gonna make it happen i got the first one on my vita oh really i sure did i want to see where we net out not that everything is like a competition you have to pit them against each other but i'm curious like of the three like will we be amongst the people that say yes two is the one are we gonna be three heads i have no idea i have a feeling we're gonna like three a lot for some reason it just feels like an into the aether game yeah everyone's second favorite is often like our poster (laughs) you know yeah looking forward to that one day dude the future should we wrap up? This has been a long episode. Yeah. Uh, AJ, maybe you could play us out at some point in that conversation. Like the huh? Olympics? Yeah. <laughs> uh, not the Olympics, what? <laughs> the Oscars. Play us out. Yeah, this is, this has been our, our speech. Like, I think before I walk off stage, Konami is not doing it right, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, into the cast.online is our hub for everything. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, you can also uh, support us on Patreon if you are able to. A huge thanks to all our patrons. We are getting very close to our $2,000 a month goal. Obviously, no pressure. Don't back it if it negatively impacts you in any way. But if you are able to back the Patreon for a dollar, you get access to all of our Patreon content. Yeah, we're $50 away. We're $50 away. We're so close. The $5 tier gets you the Airtable. 10 currently does nothing, but I think next year we have plans to... We got plans. We got plans! I was more of a transatlanticism guy than a plans guy. 31st is when our bonus comes out. Do we want to announce next month's bonus or do we want to chill on that? Oh, it's a big one, which is why I'm like hesitant. Let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait. Uh, I I like I like you can hear my big smile through the microphone. I'm sure. Can Uh, I give a hint? Yeah, give the hint. And if if it's too obvious, cut it. If it's not, keep it. Great. The hint is our bonus is about one of the many games I referenced 
in in this episode. Next month's bonus is referenced. In Our this next episode. month's bonus is going to be the feeling of falling in love for the first time. <laughs> That's all I'll say. And we also have a Patreon idea for next month that is tied to that bonus in a similar way that Norse mythology and God of War was. Yeah. So keep an eye on that. Again, thanks to everyone who was able to to support us there. It really does help the show grow and for us to get more time to, to work on this because, again, we're working full time and doing the show and we love doing it. We do it anyway, but we have serious ambitions for it and it just helps us manifest those ambitions yeah uh, to have more resources for the show to pay aj more to have more things you know we we're, thankfully because of that support we've been able to buy steam decks and have all the consoles basically i'm so sorry you're doing this like very earnest thing that i i need to slam on the brakes for a second Please Ninten- do. nintendo of america just <laughs> tweeted a video that is so wild what they tweet <laughs> they tweeted uh, a brief 10 second interaction from Fire Emblem Engage, the upcoming Fire Emblem game. Yeah. Uh, that's the ghost of Marth that you can summon talking to the main character who's named Alir. And the tweet says, here's a conversation between Emblem Marth and Alir. I don't know why he's called Emblem Marth. It's very interesting. I wonder if you like summon them through emblems. Yeah. Here's a conversation between Emblem Marth and Alir. It seems like Marth was watching over Alir the entire time that they slept. And the the text is Marth saying, it's good that we can talk after I spent so long silently watching over you. (laughs) And Alir said, I know what you mean. I'm really glad to have you at my side supporting me in person. (laughs) I've been talking a lot about that game because like everyone, I'm like kind of mixed on what's going on here. Like there's a lot that I find like really off putting and strange about this game. Yeah. But I also have to know what's up and like. We'll find out, I guess. I cannot believe this game. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, I'm really glad I can have you at my side as we make this show together. I am watching over you. I know what you mean. I'm also a ghost from a past entry of Fire Emblem. (laughs) Is that like, did did someone see the success of Three Houses and Three Hopes and say, it's because of the ghosts in their head. We got to do that in this one. Like, <laughs> well, is that, that the it. hand glider now? Every final game is going to have a weird ghost. We've hit it. We've, we got it. Yeah. The sixth sense is an emblem-like. <laughs> oh! <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. See you in My all. name is Brendan Bigley. You can find me on the internet at Brendan Bigley. I'm Emblem Steve. You can find me in the pits <laughs> of Tartarus. See you in hell. Into the castle online. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Snap back! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't record that. So, sad. I recorded it. That's on. Oh, it's d- on the sync track. <laughs> AJ, use that for whatever. TWG, the worst garbage. The online.